In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I'd be shocked if anyone listening to this episode hadn't either experienced homelessness, known someone who's experienced homelessness, or encountered someone who was homeless, even if that only means you drove by them on the road. Some of you, I'm sure, have been homeless yourselves. According to nhomelessness.org, on any given night last year, roughly 552,000 people were homeless in the U.S., and over 180,000 of those people were homeless with other family members. Over 35,000 of them were children. Not even close to all of them were lazy drug addicts who chose not to work and preferred to just aggressively yell insanity at strangers and shit on the sidewalk. Those homeless for sure exist. I've encountered them many, many times, but they're not the only type of homeless person, which is why this suck is worth digging deep on. How many of you would be homeless right now or would have been homeless at some point in your adult life if you didn't have family to stay with, somebody to help? Growing up, when my parents got divorced when I was eight, my two-year-old sister and I and my mom moved in with my grandparents. My grandparents fed us, gave us a place to stay, bought our clothes and more when my mom got back on her feet. What would have happened to us if they hadn't been there to help or if other family members hadn't been around to possibly help? Would we have been homeless? Maybe, certainly possible. I honestly don't know. I'm not sure my dad had enough money to put a roof over our heads at that time. What I do know is that my mom got a full-time job that paid either minimum wage or close to it and got another part-time job on top of that so we could move into one of my grandparents' tiny rental houses directly across the street from my grandparents' home for what I'm sure was a very friendly family rate. I know the only reason we got our back-to-school clothes at either Kmart or Shopco instead of a thrift store was because my grandparents continued to help. Impossible to raise two kids as a single mom with a low-income job or jobs if your family or friends or the government or somebody isn't helping in some way. Just like Joe Cocker saying at Woodstock, oh, baby, I get by with a little help from my friends. Whoa, 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 right? We need fucking help. I think about how many people are very, very close to being homeless right now. Some people I know seem pretty damn close to being homeless, or at least having to find some friend or family member who's going to take them in or help in some way. Check out this little bit of scary economic information. A June 2018 report from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, which bases their info on federal data, states that a minimum wage worker would have to put in a weekly total of about 122 hours, working 52 weeks per year, that's 122 hours a week, to afford an average two-bedroom apartment in this country. That leaves 46 hours a week total to not be at work. Six and a half an hour, hour uh, six and a half hour days, six and a half hours a day, excuse me, goddamn, to sleep, spend time with family, relax, maybe even occasionally have sex or masturbate. Why are so many people who do in fact work and work even more than full time, why are they still on government assistance in this country? Because they'd be homeless if they didn't get that help. The federal minimum wage hasn't kept up with the cost of living since the 1960s. 
the late 60s. And you don't need an economic degree to understand that that is not good. Not good for people who end up on the street, not good for the rest of society who can either figure out how to help those people get off the street or deal with desperate people, possibly willing to take desperate measures so they, you know, don't die. I wondered, how hard is it to raise a family and not be homeless where I live right now in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? Small city of just over 50,000 people. Much, much cheaper to live here than it is to live in uh, Portland or Seattle or San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, someplace. Get ready for some more scary numbers. Let's look at how hard life is for a family of four trying to not be homeless if both adults work full-time, but both only make minimum wage. Let's call this family the McFubars. Idaho's minimum wage is currently the same as the current U.S. federal minimum wage, $7.25 an hour. That hasn't changed since July of 2009, even though the median price of a home in America has jumped from a little over 140000 in 2009 to just over 180000 now. Not that anyone is going to be buying a home on minimum wage. That's a whole other issue. Two people working full-time at minimum wage with no weeks off would each make 15080 bucks a year. Combined, that's 30160 bucks a year before taxes. And Idaho, in addition to having federal taxes, also has state taxes. Uh, in Idaho, just under 8% of your minimum wage check would go to taxes, leaving you with $27,853 a year or $2,321 a month. So under $2,400 a month to pay for your life. Based on examining local real estate ads, rent for a two-bedroom apartment here in Coeur d'Alene is anywhere from $710 to $1,795 a month. I can only find one two-bedroom unit that was offered at $710, 865 square feet, two bedrooms, two baths. However, that price is based on a two-person occupancy. The unit charges an additional $125 a month for a third person and another $125 a month for a fourth person. So really for a family of four, rent is $960 a month, which is about the average cost for most of the other two-bedroom apartments in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Air conditioning is free, There's no in-unit washer and dryer, water and electric not included. Electric and water combined, going to cost around another hundred bucks. The the average total utilities bill for a two-bedroom apartment in Coeur d'Alene is $120. For even numbers, and to estimate on the very low end, let's say this hypothetical family lucks into the mother of all deals. Mother! And they get a two-bedroom apartment for $850 a month, utilities included, which is cheaper than the cheapest deal that I can actually find right now. That leaves them with $14.71 a month for all other bills. Now let's talk about food. No point in having a roof over the McFubar's heads if they don't have bread in their bellies. According to a recent USA Today article, kind of recent, it's from 2013, feeding a family of four in America costs anywhere from $146 to $289 a week. I'm sure it's more now, right? Just with the way inflation goes. On the low end, in a 30-day month, that's $625 a month. Now you have 846 bucks left for the month. And again, I'm going really low on all these costs. Very hard to buy four people's monthly groceries for about 600 bucks a month, unless they're also poaching meat, shooting some fucking squirrels, foraging for berries and mushrooms and shit in the woods with their copious amounts of free time. Less than $900 a month now left. We haven't factored in a car, insurance, clothes, savings, technology or luxuries of any kind. No cell phone, no PS4, no fucking Frappuccinos. What about daycare for the McFubars? The cheapest low-income daycare in Coeur d'Alene, as far as I can tell, starts at 70 bucks a week per kid. If both kids are in preschool, that would roughly be $600 a month for both kids. This is by far the cheapest, like, you know, uh, low-income daycare I could find. Now you're down to 246 bucks a month. Still haven't made a car payment. 
or bought gas or paid for, you know, uh, auto or renters or health insurance or clothes or smokes to have something to take the fucking edge off. And when you're in this kind of situation, you're dealing with a rough amount of edge in your life. You're on the edge of being homeless. Now let's say the McFubars have a car, just one. Hard to live around here and get to work and get kids to daycare and get the groceries, et cetera, if you don't have a car. Cheapest auto insurance I could find was 73 bucks a month. They're down to $173 now for everything else for the month. And that's if they have a perfect driving record and a really shitty car. So let's say the McFubars do have a really shitty car, just one, 1982 Chevy Citation. Maybe they have the last working Geo Metro still on the road and they own it outright so they don't have to have a car payment. Well, you gotta have maintenance. Maintenance costs gonna cost at least an average of about $1,200 a year. Tires, shit falling apart, oil changes, emission tests. That's what the AAA says it costs to keep a new car running. Probably more for the average beater. They're down to 156 bucks a month or 146 bucks a month now. And then gas, gas is at least another $1,500 a year based on national averages, based on the, you know, the, the current prices. Fuck, that's super confusing, right? Uh, why gas could cost that much. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. That's $225 a month now. Now the McFubars are running at a monthly deficit of $79. Now they're in the hole. And that's when they own the car. That's when they live in the cheapest apartment, actually cheaper than any apartment I can currently find. That's when they work full-time all year long, never take a week off, never get injured, never get sick. What about medicine? What about doctors and dental visits? What if one of the McFubars needs glasses or has special needs? Right, they're already in the hole and apparently they're naked because we still haven't factored in clothes yet. These poor fuckers just wandering around naked in the hole, not, not, not ever eating out, not ever having a fucking McDonald's happy meal. They don't have a cell phone. Who works and raises kids without a cell phone? How is Mr. McFubar supposed to find something to jerk off to and give himself a few minutes of joy in the rotting pile of shit that is his life without a cell phone? What about the internet? Any retirement, any savings, any meal outside the home, a fucking single bottle of bottom shelf vodka to try and drown some sorrows in. Without grandparents like mine helping out, other family or friends watching the kids, without government assistance, a family like the McFubars is almost guaranteed to become homeless at some point. Even when both McFubar parents work 40 hours a week. And a lot of people are in the same boat as the McFubars. The Fubar boat, the fucked up beyond all recognition boat. Over 2 million Americans make $7.25 an hour or less, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics. And they're not all high school kids. You know, they're not all just high schoolers doing that for some disposable income so they can blow it on condoms and weed. They're working families on the edge of being homeless. Homelessness is what we're talking about today, the history of it, the reasons for it. Drug abuse, unfortunate economic situations, mental illness, sometimes good old-fashioned laziness. A lot of different people sleeping on a lot of different streets for a lot of different reasons. It's a complex issue. Not fun to be homeless, not fun to be mentally ill. No way to easily, you know, with no way to easily access needed treatment or to be addicted to opioids. Or to be a kid out in the street, living, breathing, collateral damage to a series of decisions that somebody else has made. Also not fun to have to worry about blatant drug users, you know, camping in your neighborhood. I get that aspect of the argument. We're going to talk about that too. You know, and having them near your kid's school or wandering to the parking garage when you're walking to your car alone at night. We're going to look into what some people have been doing to fight homelessness, what we could do to help out with homelessness, and more on a social awareness, possibly perspective-shifting, eye-opening edition of Time Suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah! You're listening happy monday meat sacks i know that was the longest opening of all time but time suck welcome to june i'm dan cummins sir sucks a lot suck master the mush-mouthed mafioso who now knows that poisonous and venomous are not synonymous Mm mm-hmm got a lot of emails 
Good. Hopefully it'll stick now. Timesuck editor Jesse Dobner, quick to point out that he literally told me this difference two years ago. Me slow learner sometime. Hopefully my incorrect usage of poisonous doesn't become a situation akin to my inability to correctly pronounce nuclear. Confidence shattered. And that is based on the Darwin Award suck when I talked about poisonous snakes. They're venomous. All right. All right. Hope you're enjoying the start of your uh, summer more than Albert Fish loved having a bloody butt and a mustache full of peanut butter. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Showbiz. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M. Recording in the Suck Dungeon here in CDA with Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley and the script keeper, Zach Flannery, as Queen of the Suck manages every other aspect of my life right now. A good news, given $2,400 to charity this month, hail Nimrod. All thanks to the Space Lizard who support the show for five bucks a month on Patreon, allowing us to hire full-time employees, reinvest in recording equipment, and much more. The Space Lizards have even made some new podcasts possible. The suck keeps me so busy, it's taking a while to get ready to launch them. But this summer, we are launching the first of two new podcasts that will not replace Time Suck. Just be some different audio candy, some different audio entertainment for your ear holes to, to hopefully enjoy greatly. Launching a horror podcast, I'll give more details later, including the launch date, but it's going to be me telling my wife and coworker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, a variety of tales that people claim to be true. Horrible tales I found either on the web or in a lot of old books. I got four episodes worth already. Uh, put together because I don't sleep as much as a human's supposed to. When will I become a robot and not need sleep? Hopefully soon. Come on, scientists, figure it the fuck out. Uh, but Lindsay and I are going to record these scary tales in the dark every week. The ones I found spooky as shit. Hopefully going to scare her. Hopefully scare you as well. Probably going to scare myself. We'll see how terrified we both are when I hit the road and then she's home alone. I'm in a hotel somewhere alone. Uh, we're outfitting a new recording studio with multiple cameras, deluxe soundboard. And much more right now. Uh, get ready for a whole lot of shadow people level of fear coming your way soon there, Meat Sacks. Space Lizards also get 20% off all merch, a subscription to The Secret Suck, where they have all kinds of fun on Thursdays at noon Pacific time. They get a digital download of my secret stand-up album, Feel the Heat, and a portion of their donation goes to a different charity every month. All hail to Space Lizards. And this month, Time Suck has given $2,400 to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, founded in 1983. The National Alliance to End Homelessness is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization whose sole purpose is to end homelessness in the U.S. They use research and data to find solutions to homelessness, working with federal and local partners to create a solid base of policy and resources that support those solutions and help the communities implement them. One of the solutions they support is the Housing First Homeless Eradication Strategy we'll be talking about later in this suck. To donate more yourself, to find out where to donate, check it out. It's going to be in the episode description. It's endhomelessness.org. Again, the link will be in the episode description. Uh, thanks, everyone, for the continued reviews, various online reviewable places. Thanks to all you street team sticker all-stars blanketing much of the world in Time Suck stickers. You can see the pictures on our social media at Time Suck Podcast. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Instagram is the easiest place, in my opinion, to check it all out. Follow us there. It's amazing to watch. Thanks also to those who came out to Omaha recording this in advance of those shows. I'm going to assume I had fun. I know I had fun in Jacksonville. My first time at the Comedy Zone there. Had a lot of cool suckers come out to the shows. One, this lady even brought two baby monkeys. Not, not joking. This is the first that I know of. The monkeys seemed happy. I think I found a new audience demographic. I want to do shows for baby monkeys now. They seem to enjoy themselves. Looking forward to Raleigh, North Carolina this weekend, Thursday through Saturday, June 13th to the 15th. 18 and up at this venue. Get in there, young suckers. Get the fuck in there. Uh, last happy murder tour stand-up shows. Until the end of July when I hit Cincinnati on the 26th and 27th at the West Liberty Funny Bone. Uh, what if I just went door to door, just showed up in towns 
What are you doing? What are you doing tonight? Just knock on just, just knock knock on doors and various people. What are you doing later tonight? I got a comedy show. Hey, okay, okay. Get the fucks of my show. <laughs> God, I should try that at least once. <laughs> no, probably not. I shouldn't try that. That's how I'm gonna end up on the street. Let's get let's get back to our topic too, but homelessness. A phenomenon that hundreds of thousands of meat sacks are experiencing right now, this very moment, for a variety of reasons. And that's just counting homeless in the United States, a few of whom are time suckers. I've read their emails over the past years. We do have some homeless listeners. The last time a global survey of homelessness was attempted by the United Nations in 2005, Illuminati, uh, a disturbing estimated 100 million people were homeless worldwide. And as many as 1.6 billion people lack adequate housing of any kind. And I know a lot more people experience it in a different way. Maybe you're losing customers because you operate a business near a food bank or shelter and you've had it with the less than hygienic non-customers scaring off the paying customers to the point that you're worried about losing your business. Being angry about a growing homeless population in your neighborhood or near where you work doesn't make you a monster. Hopefully though, you don't think all of those homeless people are just on the street because of a lack of work ethic or poor character qualities. If only life were that simple. Again, this is a complex issue. And if we ever hope to solve the homelessness crisis, we need to first understand it. So let's get smarter. You knowledge thirst and beautiful motherfuckers. Let's start by defining what it even means to be homeless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What exactly is classified as homelessness? Might seem obvious. Right? Someone sleeping on the sidewalk, right? Not necessarily. I slept on the sidewalk for a while one night after doing, uh, not doing the proper math. When it came to factoring in how altitude affects personal alcohol consumption limits, when I was at a comedy festival in Aspen, Colorado, I had a home. That night I had a hotel. I was just too drunk to find it. And thank God I was light enough at that time for a comic <laughs> named Chad Daniels to literally carry me to my room and then make sure I didn't die. He has a new fantastic comedy special, by the way, called Dad Chaniels. Amazon Prime. Check it out. But seriously, homelessness has a lot of different looks. In the U.S., homelessness is defined officially in several different ways. The definition varies between regions and has to conform to different government assistance program requirements. Health centers funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, use the following description. Defining homelessness as a homeless individual is defined in Section 330H5A as an individual who lacks housing without regard to whether the individual is a member of a family including an individual whose primary residence during the night is a supervised public or private facility, for example, for example, shelters, that provides temporary living accommodations and an individual who is a resident in transitional housing. A homeless person is an individual without permanent housing who may live on the streets, stay in a shelter, mission, single room occupancy facilities, abandoned building or vehicle, or in any other unstable or non-permanent situation. The HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, defines homelessness as an individual may be considered to be homeless if that person is doubled up, a term that refers to a situation where individuals are unable to maintain their housing situation and are forced to stay with a series of friends and or extended family members. In addition, previously, homeless individuals who are to be released from a prison or hospital may be considered homeless if they do not have a stable housing situation to which they can return, a recognition of the instability of an individual's living arrangements is critical to the definition of homelessness. Uh, programs funded by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, use a different, more limited, and frankly, pretty outdated definition of homelessness, in my opinion. They define homelessness as anyone who wraps a couple of bologna and American cheese sandwiches in an old handkerchief and then ties it to the end of a stick 
throws that stick over their shoulder and runs away from home, eventually making it to some lonely train tracks where they eventually encounter some elderly hobos who teach them how to open cans of bean with their teeth, play the harmonica, and how to jump in and out of moving freight trains. <laughs> and of course, that is not how HUD defines homelessness. That is just the result of me watching too many uh, cartoons as a kid. There are six aspects in HUD's definition. An individual who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. That's one. Two, an individual who has a primary nighttime residence that is public or private place, not designed for or ordinarily used as a regular sleeping accommodation for human beings, including a car, park, abandoned building, bus or train station, airport, or camping ground. Three, an individual or family living in a supervised, publicly or privately operated shelter designed to provide temporary living arrangements, including hotels and motels paid for by the federal, state, or local government programs for low-income individuals or by charitable organizations, congregate shelters, and transitional housing. Four, an individual who resided in a shelter or place not meant for human habitation and who is exiting an institution where he or she temporarily resided. Five, an individual or family who will imminently lose their housing as evidenced by a court order resulting from an eviction action that notifies the individual or family that they must leave within 14 days. Having a primary nighttime resident that is a room in a hotel or motel where they lack the resources necessary to reside there for more than 14 days or credible evidence indicating that the owner or renter of the housing will not allow the individual or family to stay for more than 14 days and any oral statement from an individual or family seeking homeless assistance that is found to be credible shall be considered credible evidence for purposes of this clause has no subsequent residents identified, lacks the resources or support networks needed to obtain other permanent housing. And then six, unaccompanied youth and homeless families with children and youth defined as homeless under other federal statutes who have experienced a long-term period without living independently in permanent housing have experienced persistent inability or instability as measured by frequent moves over such period and can be expected to continue in such status for an extended period of time because of chronic disabilities chronic physical health or mental health conditions, substance addiction, histories of domestic violence or childhood abuse, the presence of a child or youth with a disability or multiple barriers to employment. I like how specific the 14 days uh, part was. Like they for sure had numerous meetings to figure that out. Lots of emails, lots of scrutinization. Someone pitched, you know, a month, someone pitched a week, you know, probably arguments. But listen, Jeremy, if we define homelessness as anyone who might be on the street in a month, a quarter of the goddamn nation's gonna be homeless. There's no way in the month. Hard no. Now, Michelle, a week feels heartless. Can't get anyone into some kind of assistance program. If we only got a week, we need at least two weeks. 14 days. That's the definition. Write it down, Connor. Now that that's settled, let's get back to what we here in this government department do best. Creating a bunch of convoluted, unnecessary, frustrating paperwork for American citizens to be able to never fucking figure out how to access the programs we've been hired to create. <laughs> let's go to lunch. Uh, a lot of legal definitions necessary to prove that one qualifies for various social programs. Basically, you're homeless when you, or if you're a kid, when your parents don't own or aren't paying for some sort of permanent residence or aren't staying with someone who owns or is paying for a permanent residence and is cool letting you live there as long as you need. If you're sleeping in the street or in a park or in a shelter because you've got no other place to go, if you're crashing on a, crashing on a buddy's couch for a few days, don't know where you're going to go after that, you are fucking homeless. And like I said earlier, way too many Americans either homeless or real close to being homeless. New study from the Federal Reserve says four in 10, four in 10 Americans cannot afford to handle a single $400 emergency. 400 bucks separates them from having to get help from a family, friends, or the government, or being out on the street. Now let's check out the history of homelessness. 
in the U.S. at least, if, if, if we looked at the history of the, yeah, we're going to look at the U.S. Because if we looked at it in the world, well, once you go back to the, the time before the ancient Sumerians and other Mesopotamian cultures, the world's first known civilizations, everyone was kind of homeless. Isn't that kind of weird to think about? Right? Also, no one was homeless because no one really had homes in the way we think of them now. Uh, you, know, you go far enough back, the ancient version of being homelessness or being homeless, excuse me, just uh, having to find a new cave. After you get forced out of a current cave, maybe a bear comes in there. And you're like, fuck, I gotta find, I'm homeless now. This bear's gonna take this cave. God damn it, I just had, had to vacate another cave because of a saber-toothed tiger. Or maybe, or maybe you gotta find some new leaves to build a rudimentary tent or fort, you know, with because you happened to do something to your old leaf. Maybe you ate them. Maybe you decided to eat your original home. Simpler times when life was arguably much harder, but when there was also, uh, you know, no such thing as economic disparity. Okay. Let's talk about the current situation. Let's talk about the, for today's Time Suck timeline. We're going to get into it right after a quick word from one of today's sponsors. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Hims. Sexual performance issues, more common than you think. Luckily for Hims.com, is here with a discreet and effective way to help. Whittle your wood into something magnificent. A boner sculpture worth fucking praying to without having to tell anyone how you're doing it. For Hims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, Sexual wellness for men and more. I just reordered their Morning Glow Vitamin C Serum and their Goodnight Wrinkle Cream, which I even used on a new tattoo to help uh, with the healing. Lindsay keeps using it. She uses the Goodnight Wrinkle Cream a lot. It feels luxurious without the luxury price tag. And who doesn't like low price luxury? And if I ever experience erectile dysfunction, I will order a solution for that from Hims as well. Hims connects you with real doctors, medical grade solutions to treat erectile dysfunction. Products are shipped directly to your door well-known generic equivalents to the name brand prescriptions to help you combat erectile dysfunction. And that is important, man, to save some money. I've, I've asked pharmacists before, it's like, seriously, is there any difference at all between the name brand and the generic? Every single time they're like, nah, it's just marketing. So try Hims for a month today while just for just five bucks while supplies last. That's right, try Hims for a month today, just $5 while supplies last. See website for full details and safety info. This would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or pharmacy. Go to forhimscom slash timesuckED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuckED. Forhims.com slash timesuckED. Link in the episode description button on the Timesuck app. Now, let's stop talking about boners and get back to talking about homelessness. Those two probably do not go hand in hand. I imagine it is easier to focus on your boners if you have a private residence to beat them inside. Time for today's Timesuck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Let's head back to 1607, the year I was born. Highlander, there can be only one. No, 1607 is the year the Jamestown colony was settled, America's first colony that survived anyway. Uh, Jamestown tried to initially incentivize their colonists with the common good mantra. Sharing land like some kind of crazy communists. Sounded good in theory. Let's all share the land for the colony and farm it together. And guess what happened? Famine set in. Why? Partly because in a group setting like that, in my opinion, and the opinion of many historians, some people tend to not pull their fucking weight if they think other group members will pick up their slack and then the whole group suffers. And this is going to relate to homelessness, I promise. You know what, you know what uh, assignments I hated far, far more than any other, any other kind of assignments back in school? Group assignments. Why? Because for some reason, I almost always got stuck with some fucking deadbeats who cared far less about what score the group project was going to get than I did. Freeloaders were more than happy to just let me do all the work. My hatred of communism has early roots. 
Yamo don't work. Oh, 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 Yamo don't work. Don't keep forgetting it only works in theory. Don't keep forgetting communism really sucks ass. Triple M'd. It's been too long. You just got McDonald's, new listener. Kind of. You got McDonald's parody. You did it. It did something. But for real, the land of Jamestown, lush and fertile. Yet within three years, many of the colonists died during what came to be known as the starving time. And some historians think that only the establishment of private property saved Jamestown. And it wasn't just because some people were lazy. It was because people just tend to work harder if they know they will be rewarded for that hard work. Most meat sacks need incentive to do their best. I firmly believe that. British economist, historian, conservative political journalist Tom Bethel wrote in a book called The Noblest Triumph, uh, Property and Prosperity Through the Ages. The colonists were indolent because most of them were indentured servants, expected to toil for seven years and contribute the fruits of their labor to the common store. And Tom feels that since the first men of Jamestown knew they wouldn't benefit from their hard work, they just tended not to work very hard. And I agree with Tom. Then in 1611, a new governor, Thomas Dale, showed up. He arrived to find people bowling in the street rather than work in the land that clearly needed working and expanding fortifications. And he decided to cancel their little communal experiment, open up the colony to private ownership, and it was a great decision. Dale allowed every man three acres of land, freed them from indentured servitude to work the land for themselves, keep the fruits of their labor. Virginia historian Matthew Page Andrews wrote, as soon as the settlers were thrown upon their own resources and each freeman had acquired the right of owning property, the colonists quickly developed what became the distinguishing characteristic of Americans, an aptitude for all kinds of craftsmanship coupled with an innate genius for experimentation and invention. The Jamestown colony became a success largely due to the concept of private ownership and people from all over Europe flocked to America. Tom Bethel, many other historians and economists feel that private property ownership is essential for optimal overall economic growth, and I agree strongly. A few people might not care about owning their own home or business, but I sure as hell do, and so do most of my friends. The thrill of owning your own business is part of what keeps me fired up about this podcast. Sure, I love learning all of this, truly, but I also love not having a boss, making my own business decisions, and owning this baby. So what does this have to do with homelessness? Nothing. I decided to change the topic. Now we're doing a Jamestown suck. Fucking deal with it. Anyway, let's talk about Jamestown for the next hour and a half. No, be gone, Lucifina. No, this has a lot to do with homelessness. The decision virtually, or this decision back in 1611 virtually guaranteed a future that would include homelessness. You know, if communism were to work, no one would be homeless. If the community were to survive, everyone would have a place in it. But not so with private ownership. A natural negative side effect to transitioning from communal living to private property ownership is homelessness. Some of the people pouring in from Europe didn't do a good job working their acres. Or whatever, you know, uh, deal kind of brought them over and, you know, they, they, they couldn't work it for some reason. Maybe they, maybe they ended up selling or bartering away their property and then they lost whatever they got in exchange for their property. And then they became some of America's first homeless people known as vagabonds. Uh, early American settlements like Jamestown inherited an English legal system when it came to how to deal with these vagabonds. Constables in England had been authorized under early 14th century English poor laws to arrest vagabonds, force them to prove employment or show a permanent residence. And if they could not, they were imprisoned and punished. Initially, vagabonds should be, uh, could be sentenced to the stocks for three days and nights. In 1530, whipping was added. Showbiz! Uh, the presumption was also that vagabonds were beggars, and many were. In 1547, a bill was passed that subjected vagrants to some of the most extreme provisions of the criminal law, namely two years of indentured servitude and being branded, physically branded, with a V as a penalty for the first offense. And then death was the penalty for the second. 
Can you imagine if you, if we started branding people for crimes again? I don't know. I just was thinking about that. Like what a bummer it would be if you were wrongly convicted for a really socially heinous crime like pedophilia. Then even though you ended up being found innocent, right? After the initial conviction, you get back out, but now you're still stuck with like a giant P or something on your forehead. Oh my God. First words to every new person you meet for the rest of your life are just, I, I didn't do it. I say it was overturned. I'm not a, I'm not a pedo. I'm not a, I, listen, I know, I know. I know. Oh, I got a giant P on my forehead. I, I did not do it. Then you, then you just pull out this bunch of court papers that you just always have in like a little satchel just on your person at all times. Just, just read this. Now here, let's look at this one. This is my appeal. This is the overturned conviction paperwork. If, if you take just 20 or 30 minutes just to get a little bit familiar with the case, you will clearly see that little Jimmy's mom, Sandra, who I used to date, had a grudge against me. Scorned woman, all that stuff. She used Jimmy as a pawn to malign my. And then people are just like, dude, 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 it's fine. I don't, I don't care, man. I'm just here to deliver the pizza. Anyway, shortly after the American colonies got going in the 18th century, large numbers of British vagabonds among the first convicts transported to the colonies. So now homeless people are actually being exported to America. Vagabonds with no place to call their own, often no steady source of income, dependent on the mercy of strangers to survive. Still for years, vagabonds, pretty rare, weren't really recognized by anyone as being a major social or cultural problem. Just kind of here and there, some wanderers. Homelessness, as we recognize it today, didn't really get going in the U.S. until the 1820s, and it had urbanization created by the Industrial Revolution to think. Prior to the 1820s, fewer than 7% of Americans lived in cities. That number would more than double to 15% by 1850. The boom of industrialization in the 19th century brought in a steady migration of people to booming urban centers like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and more. Vagrancy records rose right along with all those factory jobs. By the 1850s, there were early homeless shelters of a sort for these vagrants, lodging rooms located inside police stations. Urban slums began to appear uh, in American cities, excuse me, plagued with overcrowding, poor hygiene, rudimentary sanitation. While its etymological origin is 1814, the term homelessness didn't really get bounced around in the U.S. lexicon until the 1870s. It was used to describe homeless workers referred to as tramps traversing the country in search of jobs. The primary social concern with homelessness at that time revolved around morality. Moralists perceived an emerging moral crisis that threatened long-held ideas of home life rather than focusing on people and families not having basic necessities needed to survive or a permanent residence. Now, who, who cares if they're living in squalor out on the street? They're not raising a family. They're drunk. And most importantly, they're not going to church. Sodom and Gomorrah, here we come. One religious group described the problem in the 1870s as a crisis of men let loose from all the habits of domestic life, wandering without aim or home. The American Civil War also added to this new homelessness problem. Former slaves now had no place to live. Former soldiers didn't always have families to return home to. Former soldiers sometimes were also psychologically traumatized by the war so badly they didn't know how to return home and resume a normal life. Also by 1870, 26% of Americans lived in urban areas. Almost four times the amount of, of uh, people lived in urban areas who had lived there prior to the 1820s. The construction of the National Railroad System in the mid and late 19th century combined with urban industrialization led to the emergence of a new type of homeless. The whole tramps and hobos riding the rails bouncing from job to job and city to city. Uh, the word hobo first appeared in the 1880s in Western America, and it softened the public's perception of tramps. This culture of migrant laborers was often romanticized in American literature, including uh, being romanticized by writers such as Walt Whitman, Bret Hart, Sinclair Lewis. Jack London wrote vivid depictions of the call of the road. 
It was an escape from the oppression and monotony of factory work. This new hobo army of mostly young, able-bodied men created a culture that blended the search for work with a love for the open road, a disdain for the constraint of workers in industrialized America. Willing to embrace hard work, they constituted a counterculture of their own with unwritten rules. It's a very specific type of homeless, but for every Jack London who romanticized these hobos, there were also many others who despised them, like Francis Wayland, the dean of Yale Law School who wrote in 1877, As we utter the word tramp, there arises straight away before us the spectacle of a lazy, shiftless, sauntering or swaggering, ill-conditioned, irreclaimable, incorrigible, cowardly, utterly depraved savage. I think that's his way of saying, I don't care for them. Very, very wordy, very verbose way of saying that. Hopefully the people who loved the hobos and those who hated them at least all agreed that the hobo lingo was awesome because that for sure is true. Oh, spent way too much time learning some hobo lingo last couple of days. Let's, let's talk about a few hobo slang terms just for some random trivia in this heavy episode and just some comedic, lighthearted fun. You hear about Jimmy Fisheyes? He turned barnacle. Gave up being a boomer for a steady flop and a fatter leather poke. A barnacle was a fellow who sticks to one job uh, a year or more. I love that someone who works a steady job is given a derogatory term. A boomer is a hobo always on the move. A flop is a hobo term for a place to stay and a leather poke is a wallet. Look at this cackler. Ain't never hopped a hot shot or decked him a day in his life. Hey, Captain, you got a light for these coffin nails? Don't be puffing nails back at the Hotel de Gink. It's littered with rank cats and stew bumps. A cackler is a white-collar worker. Hot shot is a fast train. To deck him is to ride on the roof of a passenger train from town to town. Coffin nails are cigarettes. Captain is a hobo term for big shot. Hotel de Gink is a charity house shelter. Rank cats are hobos that even other hobos look down upon. And stew bums are hobos that have stopped riding the rails and just get drunk aimlessly on the street. Love these terms. There's pages and pages and pages of these. <laughs> Let's just do one more set of them. Open up your draw strap and put some hoot in your wingdings. Time to get a slapping in and scrapping if we're going to mow the lawn and stir that peanut butter. A draw strap is a zipper on a pair of pants. A hoot is an erection. Wingdings are male genitalia. Slapping in and scrapping is slang for sexual foreplay. Mow the lawn is using gasoline to burn off the pubic hair of someone you've just tied up and stir that peanut butter is slang for anal sex. <laughs> and none of that is hopeless slang. I made that last one up. But it does bring us to our next sponsor. Time Suck is once again brought to you by Albert Fish Tortures the Classics. Tor- <laughs> Tortures takes on classic songs the 1920s and 1930s Redone in a way that only pleases Albert Fish. Check out this little hobo ditty. Uh, re- reworked. It's uh, Hello, My Baby. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my fat bottom gal. Whip me until you tire. Baby, my monkey's on fire. If you refuse me, won't go abuse me. I'll cook up your skin and bones. Oh, baby, peanut butter butter. It's what gives daddy moans. That is how they do it in Hollywood. Show me. And for a limited time when you are... <laughs> So ridiculous. I've been singing that so much lately. When you order this album, you can get a free Albert's Creamy Peanut Butter t-shirt and a free Albert's Crunchy Peanut Butter sticker. Now, with no kink shame. If you're confused, new listener, little callback to the Albert Fish Suck right there. Kidding about the, the free part with the shirt, but we really actually do. Not joking. We do have an Access Apparel Design Albert's Peanut Butter t-shirt and sticker in the Time Suck Shopify store. It's the most ridiculous product uh, we've made so far. If you like that suck and laugh at my terribly dark jokes, you will laugh so fucking hard when you see this shirt and sticker. I laugh so. And it's totally wearable in public. 
you know, no one would ever know uh, unless they were a big Albert Fish fan. Even then they might not know, but good luck explaining this origin. Ah, I love my, I love my job so much sometimes right now. So happy. Okay. Enough madness. That is not, that is not, sorry, not our sponsor. I can't get that ditty out of my head. Hello, my baby. Let's get back to the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, growing concern over America's growing homeless population leads to the development of America's first rescue missions. In 1872, America's first such mission, the New York City Rescue Mission, founded by Jerry and Maria McCauley. Salvation Army was founded in 1865 in London's East End by a former Methodist minister, William Booth, and his wife, Catherine. And they started working with the homeless in America in the 1880s. They soon opened rescue missions uh, offering soup, soap, and salvation, a phrase they introduced. In 1890, New York City journalist and photographic documentarian Jacob Reese has his groundbreaking book published, How the Other Half Lives. While not written specifically about homeless people, it was written about people who were damn near homeless, living in squalid, overcrowded New York City tenements. When certain social elites had their eyes open to what life looked like in their city slums, some building codes were finally changed and improved social conditions were finally fought for. Check out this quick quote from that book. With the first hot nights in June, police dispatches that record that record the killing of men and women by rolling off roofs and windowsills while asleep, announced that the time of greatest suffering among the poor is at hand. It is in hot weather when life indoors is well knee unbearable with cooking, sleeping, and working all crowded into the small rooms together that the tenement expands, reckless of all restraint. So Jesus, these little crowded, poorly ventilated apartments were so hot, residents would go sleep on the roof of these, you know, very tall buildings on windowsills, roll off to their deaths. Like this was a a semi-regular occurrence. And there were others who didn't even have homes that shitty to stay in. In 1892, the U.S. government began to address homelessness directly. That year, America's Congress allocated $20,000 to the Department of Labor to investigate urban slums in cities with at least 200,000 residents. Couldn't find any stats about the number of homeless in America in the late 19th century. There's a good chance those numbers officially don't exist. But to show how big of a problem homelessness was becoming, I came across some tragic info about a growing epidemic of homeless orphans in the late 19th century. According to one source, New York City, had about 500,000 residents by 1850, and anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 were specifically orphaned homeless children. Up to 30,000 homeless orphans in this one city. Extrapolate that percentage onto today's New York City population, you get about 150,000 homeless orphaned children running around. Why so many? Well, poor immigrants running from dire economic situations in their home countries were showing up in America with nothing. And they do whatever they needed to to survive. And that often meant taking dangerous factory jobs in the days before worker safety measures were given a shit about. Plus, a lot of uh, more people died of diseases back in the days before vaccinations, diseases like the flu and typhoid. And that's a recipe for orphans. There were so many street kids that between the 1850s and the 1920s, roughly 250,000 homeless orphans known as gutter snipes were gathered up by various charitable organizations sent to the Midwest to be raised on farms by poor farmers who would literally buy these kids at auctions. The families needed extra farm hands. The kids needed a bed, roof, and, uh, and food in their bellies. And now I have an entirely new appreciation for Orphan Annie. Seriously, I didn't understand the, the origin of that whole tale. All those Annie films and musicals and Broadway plays are based on a comic strip that debuted in 1924 in the New York Daily News. And that comic was based on an 1885 poem called Little Orphan Annie, written by James Whitcomb Riley. And it was written about Mary Alice Allie Smith, 
a young orphan living in the Riley home, one of New York City's many, many orphans that would have been homeless had they not adopted her. When the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, there was a huge boom in the number of people experiencing homelessness in America. There were so many homeless that shanty towns or tent cities started popping up on the edges of various cities, just like many of these tent cities exist today. Many of the cities then were called Hoovervilles, named after President Herbert Hoover, who was blamed for the Great Depression. There was a Hooverville outside of Seattle, Washington that stood from 1931 to 1941, covered nine acres, housed roughly 1,200 people, only shut down because the government wanted the land it was located on for a World War II shipping facility. And today, Seattle is dealing with tent cities all over again. They're now called Nickelvilles. Nickelsville, excuse me, tiny houses and tent encampments that were inspired by former mayor Greg Nichols ordering massive sweeps, closures of homeless camps in 2008, and they're still around. Residents of Hoovervilles lived in cobbled together shacks made out of cardboard, tar paper, glass, lumber, tin, whatever other materials they could find. Hoovervillians begged for food, would eat at soup kitchens. Very interesting photos taken back. You can easily find them at the Google search online. Fascinating stuff. Pictures of these people living in these Hoovervilles. By 1933, one quarter of America's workers, more than 15 million people were out of work. Many of them either homeless or damn close to it. In response to the growing number of homeless, a number of federal policies and pieces of legislation were enacted in the 1930s to improve the overall quantity and affordability of housing. Unaffordable housing has always seemed to be the major or at least one of the major obstacles to getting off the street, which only makes sense. The Emergency Relief and Construction Act of 1932 authorized the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to lend public funds to corporations to build housing for low-income families. Then there was the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which allowed the Public Works Administration, a government-sponsored work program, to use federal funds for slum clearance, the construction of low-cost housing, and subsidence homesteads. Homesteads. Close to 40,000 low-income housing units were produced under this program in just that year. Now, did these programs end homelessness? No, but many historians think they went a long way along with other FDR depression era programs to keep the U.S. homeless problem from spiraling much further out of control. In the 1940s, World War II actually went a long way to reducing homelessness in America. The war drafted a lot of young men, giving them military employment, put a lot of men and women back to work, making all the various equipment and weaponry needed to wage war. Over the ensuing three decades, less and less young Americans were becoming homeless. The Hoovervilles vanished. The typical individual experiencing homeless continued to be uh, disproportionately white and uh, male, but became increasingly older, usually over 50, disabled, dependent on welfare or social security. And if they're able to find a roof to put over their heads, they typically resided in cheap hotels, flop houses, and in single room occupancy hotels located in the poorest neighborhoods and skid rows of urban America. In the 1950s and 60s, homelessness actually declined so much overall that researchers were confident it would completely disappear by the 1970s. It didn't. But amazing that things looked so good for a while, they thought it could disappear. It gives me hope. It inspires me that maybe we could actually fix this someday. 1963, new well-intentioned legislation actually ended up adding to the type of homelessness we often see today. Homeless people who are clearly severely mentally ill. The U.S. government put the Community Mental Health Act into effect in 1963. And under this act, Long-term psychiatric patients began to be released from state hospitals into single-room occupancies and sent to community health centers for treatment and follow-up. No more Dr. Icepick McBrain stabbers, if you remember that all the way back from Times Up 20, insane, insane asylums. Many American psychiatric institutions used to, uh, to be houses of horror where patients were essentially imprisoned, sometimes for life, and severely mistreated. Also, 
Remember the MK Ultra bonus suck from August of 2017 when the CIA used psychiatric patients as human guinea pigs to test possible mind control elixirs on? Well, now the government began to try to deinstitutionalize these people. Unfortunately, this led to many mentally ill people fending for themselves on the street, an arguably worse fate than being locked up in questionable institutions. In terms of modern conceptions of homelessness, the Community Mental Health Act of 1963 again played a massive role. In the U.S. during the late 70s, the continued deinstitutionalization of patients from state psychiatric hospitals increased the homeless populations of many American major urban areas, such as New York City. Also, soldiers returning from Vietnam, physically whole but mentally damaged, added to the ranks of America's homeless. The number of homeless continued to grow in the 1980s as housing and social service cuts increased and the economy deteriorated. The United States government determined that somewhere between 200,000 and 500,000 Americans were now homeless in the early 80s. The exact number is always very hard to, uh, to nail down precisely because, you know, gathering most census information requires knowing where somebody lives. Social workers started to notice more young homeless people in the 1980s, more addicts as America entered its so-called crack epidemic period that lasted from 1984 to 1990 when the cheap, highly addictive, smokable form of cocaine tore apart many of America's poorest neighborhoods. Pass up my crack! Pass up my crack! You remember that? In addition, homeless women and families started to become a bigger part of the picture in the 1980s. The 80s marked the beginning of what has become known as chronic homelessness in the United States. Changing economic conditions, political policies reduced the number of low-cost rental units from 6.5 million in 1970 to 5.6 million in 1985, while the number of low-income renter households grew from 6.2 million in 1970 to 8.9 million in 1985. In response to the ensuing homelessness crisis of the 1980s, President Reagan signed into law the McKinney-Vento Homeless Assistance Act of 1987. This remains the only piece of federal legislation that allocates funding to the direct service of homeless people. The McKinney-Vento Act paved the way for social service providers to work directly with homeless populations for the first time. During the 1990s, homeless shelters, soup kitchens, other supportive services sprouted up in cities and towns across the nation. However, despite these efforts and the dramatic economic growth of the 90s, homeless numbers remained high. It became increasingly apparent that simply providing services to alleviate the symptoms of homelessness, i.e. shelter beds, hot meals, psychiatric counseling, etc., wasn't able to solve the complex problem of homelessness. In 2004, the United States Conference of Mayors surveyed the mayors of major cities on the extent and causes of urban homelessness. Most of the mayors named the lack of affordable housing as the primary cause of homelessness. The next three causes identified by the mayors were mental illness, substance abuse, low-paying jobs. Other causes cited were unemployment, domestic violence, and poverty. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's 2008 Annual Homelessness Assessment Report, the most common demographic features of all sheltered homelessness, homeless people are male, members of minority groups, older than 31, single, and alone. Also, more than 40% of sheltered homeless people have a disability. That's a high percentage, more than 40%. In 2008, more than 66% of all sheltered homeless people were located in principal cities, with 32% located in suburban or rural jurisdictions. About 40% of people entering a, an emergency shelter or transitional housing program during 2008 came from another homeless situation. 40% came from a house situation. The remaining 20% were split between institutional settings or other situations such as hotels or motels. Most people had relatively short lengths of stay in emergency shelters. 60% stayed less than a month. 33% stayed a week or less. Okay. 
So now let's get out of the timeline and take a more in-depth look into America's current homelessness situation right after a word from today's final sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Been hearing from more and more Time Suckers after stand-up and live podcast shows on the road about how much they enjoy The Great Courses Plus and how they love the knowledge it gives them. Hail Nimrod. Whether it's solving a problem at work or exchanging trade with friends, having the right answer is satisfying. And The Great Courses Plus is a priceless source of knowledge in just about any field. The streaming service offers thousands of lectures on everything from ancient Egypt to exoplanets, from philosophy to painting and gardening with reliable in-depth information from award-winning professors and experts that have unique perspectives you've never even thought about. I recommend checking out the course, The Psychology of Human Behavior. It's a fascinating look into how we develop and function as human beings, looking at how the mind works and directions for continuing to get to better understand ourselves and others. I think it's a great companion piece to this episode, a great way to help wrap one's mind around the very complex issue of how one becomes homeless and why one can remain so and what do we do about it? Why do we make the choices we make? Check out this course and you're going to know. So know the right answers and start learning. With The Great Courses Plus, Time Suckers get a full free month of unlimited access. When you sign up today using the, our URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Link in the episode description, button in the sponsor section of the Time Suck app and website. Getting out of the Time Suck fucking timeline right now. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Okay, now that we've briefly touched on the history of homelessness in the United States, let's look at our current homeless situation. I worked on some of the research for this episode in Starbucks in Spokane, Washington, while I waited to pick my son Kyler up from school, and right outside the window, as I'm working on this, is a homeless guy. I've seen him many times around that Starbucks. The majority of the time when I've ever worked in any Starbucks, there have been homeless people around. I used to ride at a Starbucks on Santa Monica and Bundy, West LA, Los Angeles, about a mile west of the 405 freeway. Spent a lot of hours there between 2011, 2016, working on jokes, writing some sitcom pitch or some episode of a sitcom or reality show I was working on as a, as a writer or producer. I was there literally hundreds of times and didn't work there a single time when someone who wasn't blatantly severely mentally ill wasn't also there, who wasn't also homeless. You know, it's sad. I'm not going to lie. Uh, sometimes in addition to being sad, there were some pretty humorous moments as well. Let's lighten shit up again. Situation so darkly absurd. All you can do in the moment is just really get, you get sad or, or laugh. And I usually choose laughter. This one dude, uh, this one dude used to come to this very busy Starbucks on a regular basis, screaming obscenities, muscular dude, around 50 years old, dressed and built like he, he, he looked to me like he's probably ex-military, didn't look like a guy you wanted to fuck with. He would storm into the Starbucks screaming shit like, I will fucking kill whoever needs to die. You ain't gonna fuck with me. You ain't gonna fuck with me. I fucking do what's right. I fucking do what needs doing. Like that kind of shit. Like intense. Screaming it like I'm screaming it now. As he's screaming this, he would make his way to the counter where baristas would set people's drinks when they were done making them. And then he would carefully look over the drinks, still screaming, but kind of like half-assing it now because he's distracted by trying to pick out a drink. So he's still like, I mean, I'll fucking kill I'm a milk mocha, huh? You can't fuck with the truth. Matcha latte. I'll, I'll kick the grim reaper himself, that motherfucker. Oh yeah, this is my shit here. And then, and then he would just take somebody's drink and then calmly exit the Starbucks. Sometimes he'd give like a final scream as he got near the door. Armageddon will come, motherfuckers. 
It fucking killed me. It killed me how he could, I mean, so many people were so scared. He could act so insane while also have his shit together enough to carefully pick out somebody else's drink and then drink it for himself and then just watch out. Pretty funny to watch. Not funny for the people working there. I'm sure. Not funny to think about how sad his life actually was. You know, sure, he grabbed a free coffee, but he probably also slept on the sidewalk like so many people in the neighborhood did every night. Dude was homeless. How many others live like he did? It's hard to determine. Our editor, Times Select editor, Jesse Dobner, was homeless for six months in the fall of 2000. He was staying in a car with his mom and his cat. They would sleep in turnoffs off of mountain roads in Georgetown and Breckenridge, Colorado, where he got really cold. You ever seen a, a cat shiver because it was cold? It was cats shivering cold. And it, he said it just kind of happened. He said he was supposed to move to Seattle that summer, but the plan fell through. He had no plan B. He was able to get cleaned up enough at rest stops to get a job. And he'd work during the day. He'd sleep in the car at night. He, would eventually, he could eventually uh, afford either a semester at Colorado Mountain College or an apartment. He chose college, worked another month until he could afford a deposit for an apartment. So for a while, he worked full-time, school full-time, slept in a car at night. And now he's doing great, by the way. He's an amazing editor who helps me confidently throw out the information I do. Love having him on the team. Love that he has a home and is getting married, actually. Uh, Hail Jesse Dobner. Okay, let's talk about the overall experience of homelessness. Um, you know, the overall estimates of homelessness, hard to gather. During the research for this suck, Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery talked with a friend of the show who worked for the Census Bureau who said that he estimated for every homeless person they were allowed to count, probably two others were not counted. Take this as anecdotal for sure, but again, imagine the complications of trying to, to get good data on a subject like this. That being said, here's the best data we could find. Taken from the 2018 Annual Homeless Assessment Report to Congress, put together by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. According to this report, a little over 550,000 Americans experienced either sheltered or unsheltered homelessness on a single night in 2017. More than a third of people experiencing homelessness on a single night were in unsheltered locations. Two-thirds of people experiencing homelessness were doing so as individuals, one-third in families with kids. The number of people experiencing homelessness on a single night declined by 14.9% between 2007 and 2017. So that's good. Uh, despite recent increases in unsheltered homelessness, there were 25.7% fewer people counted in places not meant for human habitation in 2017 than in 2007. In 2017, uh, just under 1.5 million people in the U.S. experienced sheltered homelessness at some point during the year. And that's actually a 10.8% decrease since 2007. I did find that interesting. I found it interesting that according to government studies, America's overall homeless population is decreasing, which is the opposite of what I have noticed traveling around the country. Uh, between 2007 and 2017, sheltered homelessness declined 15.9% in cities, but it did increase by 6% in suburban and rural areas. I think this might be the increase I've noticed. More homeless in the suburbs and smaller cities and towns. The percentage of people experiencing homelessness decreased in cities from 76.9% to 72.5% increase in suburban and rural areas from 23.1% to 27.5%. Here's some more numbers. On a single night in January 2017, just under 370,000 people experienced homelessness as individuals. And that also is a just over 11% decline since 2007. More than half of all individuals in the one-night count were staying in emergency shelters, transitional housing programs, or safe havens, while just under half were in unsheltered locations. Individuals experiencing homelessness on a single night were 4.5 times more likely to be unsheltered than people in families with kids. Of all people in unsheltered locations, just over 89% were individuals. Half of adult individuals experiencing sheltered homelessness had a disability in 2017. 
There were, this was 2.5 times the rate of disability among individuals in the general U.S. population, 1.6 times the rate of disability among individuals in the U.S. Population's, uh, population living in poverty overall. Heartbreakingly, there are many people living outdoors with their kids. About a third of the homeless population in the U.S. is part of a family. 2017, on any given night, estimated that just over 184,000 people experienced homelessness as part of a family with kids. The number of family households in the 2017 one-night estimate was 57,886. On a positive note, there are 26.3% fewer family households than in 2007. Overall, estimated that almost 480,000 people and over 150,000 family households used an emergency shelter or transitional housing program between October 1st, 2016, September 30th, 2017. People and families using shelters in urban areas declined by over 5%, increased by just over 19% in suburban and rural areas, continuing the gradual shift from principal cities to suburban and rural areas. Unaccompanied homeless youth, classified as anyone under 25 on their own, certainly among the most vulnerable of the homeless population, on any given night in America, there's about 38,000 young people on the streets. 12% of them under the age of 18. That, that's uh, over 4,500 kids. And again, as I examine that stat, homeless person walked by the Starbucks I was working in Spokane. Some guy, definitely under the age of 25, maybe as young as 18, alone, mumbling to himself, filthy and lost. Most of these youths are actually legal adults, about 87.9% of them between the ages of 18 and 24. Unaccompanied youth experiencing homelessness, much more likely to be unsheltered than all the other groups. California has more kids on the street than any other state, contributing over 33% of the national total in just that one state. Of the homeless population, another big group is veterans. There are 40,000, just over 40,000 veterans experiencing homelessness in the U.S., or there were in 2016. That represented just over 9% of all homeless uh, you know, people. Over 61% of veterans experienced homelessness in, un, excuse me, in sheltered locations, and 38.3% were in unsheltered locations. Some very good news. The number of veterans experiencing homelessness dropped 45%, just over actually, between 2009 and 2017. However, the number of homeless veterans increased between 2016 and 2017. A lot of the stats kind of show this. Between 2007, 2017, it was really dropping. But in the last couple of years, 2015, 16, 17, homelessness started to creep back up. An estimated 118,380 veterans used an emergency shelter or transitional housing uh, in 2017. The share of veterans who were elderly more than doubled between 2009 and 2017 uh, from 8.7% to 19.2%. Elderly veterans, the only group with an increase in the number experiencing homelessness between 2009-2017. Here are some more veteran homeless facts. U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs states that the nation's homeless veterans are predominantly male, Roughly 9% being female. The majority are single, live in urban areas, suffer from mental illness, alcohol and or substance abuse, or co-occurring disorders. About 11% of the adult homeless population, again, veterans. Interestingly, uh, roughly 45% of all homeless veterans are African-American or Hispanic, despite only accounting for just over 10% of the U.S. veteran population with African-American and just over 3% of the U.S. veteran population uh, with Hispanics. Homeless veterans younger on average than the total veteran population. Approximately 9% between the ages of 18 and 30, 41% between the ages of 31 and 50. Conversely, only 5% of all veterans are between the ages of 18 and 30, and less than 23% are between 31 and 50. And again, it's, I know it's a lot of numbers, but I just want to show this isn't me just talking shit. There's a lot of, lot of stats out there. America's homeless veterans have served in World War II, the Korean War, Cold War, Vietnam War, Grenada, Panama, Lebanon, Persian Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq, other military efforts. 
like U.S. anti-drug efforts in South America. Nearly half of homeless veterans served during the Vietnam era. Excuse me. That's so sad. Nearly half of them served during Vietnam. How fucked up was that that war? As we already know now from that previous suck. Wow. Uh, About 1.4 million other veterans, meanwhile, considered at risk of being homeless due to poverty, lack of support networks, dismal living conditions, and overcrowded and uh, substandard housing. Almost a million and a half more. Uh, a large number of displaced and at-risk veterans live with lingering effects of post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, PTSD, substance abuse, compounded by a lack of family and social support networks. Additionally, military occupations and training not always transferable to the civilian workforce, placing some veterans at a disadvantage when competing for civilian employment. Now, shouldn't the government take care of veterans after they've served? Yes, and they do to an extent. With the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA, each year, the VA specialized homelessness programs provide health care to almost 150,000 homeless veterans, other services to more than 112,000 veterans, and then more than 40,000 homeless veterans receive compensation or pension benefits each month. You know, not more than a, than a mile from that Starbucks I used to walk to in West LA, the one on Santa Monica and Bundy, there was a huge VA hospital. I saw homeless vets walking in and off its grounds literally every time I drove by. Also, uh, again, to try to lighten this heavy suck, out, uh, suck up at least a little bit, I once near the VA there, I once saw two grown men on Wilshire Boulevard openly jerking off while standing on the sidewalk facing traffic, pants around their ankles. It happened on different days. Same block on Wilshire. Sad, sure, but I I couldn't help but laugh at just the shocking absurdity of it each time. First off, let's just take a little break from the heaviness. First off, I, I think jerking off while standing is kind of an odd choice. Like I've done it, but for sure easier to relax and just kind of focus, I think when you're sitting or laying down. That's just my preference. Also, facing traffic, that's adding another level of difficulty to the entire situation. Like, me personally, I would rather not make eye contact with just random strangers when I'm trying to jerk off. You know, especially if I know they can see me. (laughs) You know, they're in their cars. I prefer to focus on like like one image or or, or like one narrative. Because if I get distracted, I can't finish. I mean, staring at traffic, you might have a nice little run. Making eye contact with some hot little blonde, awesome curves. Nice cleavage sitting in a Tesla. What if the light turns green and now you're staring at some fucking giant dude with a, with a little fucking weird ponytail and a PT cruiser? That's a big time boner killer. Also, how much funnier would it be, <laughs> just to make it even weirder, how much funnier would it be if both of the guys I saw masturbating were jerking off at the exact same time, standing side by side, staring at the same traffic together? I, w- I would park my car and fucking watch that. It's not even sexual anymore. It's like they're in a weird race of some kind. Who can overcome the challenge of staring at random strangers in public while jerking off and finish first? Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. <laughs> okay. Less about sex, more about competition in that situation. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let's get serious again. Okay. I, need, I needed that break. Let's talk about the chronic uh, homeless. A chronically homeless individual is governmentally defined as a person that is not part of a family with a disability who has been continuously homeless for at least one year and has been homeless for at least four times in the last three years. This group makes up uh, over 23% of all homeless individuals in America. About 87,000 people currently chronically homeless. Almost 70% of these people not in shelters. Nearly two-fifths experience, uh, of, of individuals experiencing chronic homelessness in the U.S. located in California. That's fucking over 40% of all of them located in California. No other state accounted for more than 8%. Okay, so I've thrown out a lot of stats. Let's recap. Some good news is that there appears to be an overall decline in homelessness between 2007 and 2017, about 10.8%. However, in the past few years, this decline has slowed down, has even turned into an increase in certain areas. That's that's, that's part of the bad news. Uh, The number of individuals experiencing homelessness in emergency shelters and transitional housing programs 
was roughly 15% lower in 2017 than it was in 2007. While the number of people and families with children remained stable over that time period. Unsheltered homelessness among families with children steadily declined in the past decade in all parts of the country. Not the case for people experiencing homelessness as an individual. Uh, The subset of individuals with chronic patterns of homelessness increased at a faster rate than all individuals with a year-over-year increase of 12% overall and 14% for those in unsheltered locations. These increases are recent. As of 2014, unsheltered chronic homelessness in the nation's largest cities had declined by nearly 40% since the data was collected. Each year after that, the numbers increased. And in 2017, the number of unsheltered individuals with chronic patterns of homelessness was only 9% lower than the estimate in 2007. So again, this speaks to what I said. Lately, starting to really ramp back up again. In the last year alone, unsheltered chronic homelessness rose 27% in the nation's largest cities. And while Los Angeles continues to be the primary driver of fluctuations in this population, it's not alone. And man, LA, oh my God, if you ever want your eyes opened to what homelessness can really look like in America, drive through Skid Row. It is fucking mind-blowing. The first time I just, I almost did just stop the car and be like, is this this fucking real? This giant just tent after tent after tent. People clearly fucked up on drugs or like in the middle, in the midst of a, of a psychotic episode, just wandering around in the middle of the street, like hundred, it felt like thousands of people. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen in this country. You know, as far as like, you know, anything in this kind of area. Okay. Now let's look further into the why. Why are people homeless today? What are the major factors? Easy to say like lazy, but let's let's look way deeper than that. There are many reasons that experts in several fields say that homelessness persists in the modern era. Some of these include the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, like we talked about, an inadequate supply of affordable housing options, budget cuts to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and other social service agencies, as well as a changing employment landscape, the high cost of healthcare, and inflation. Let's start with inflation. Inflation is a quantitative measure of the rate at which the average price level of goods, services, and property in an economy increases over a period of time. Often expressed as a percentage, inflation indicates a decrease in the purchasing power of a nation's currency. In many ways, it's the equivalent of a tax on the poor. When your $100 spent at the grocery store buys less than it did five years ago, that's inflation hurting you. Really hurts if you're not making any more than you did five years ago. Homes that cost just $25,000 a few decades ago sell at six digits or more now. Inflation could easily be viewed as enemy number one to our nation's most economically challenged people and definitely a huge contributing factor to homelessness. Not going to go too deep into the economic rabbit hole of why inflation occurs because there's a lot more numbers and we've already heard enough. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but, but, but check this shit out real quick. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, average U.S. salary in 1975, was $13,779. Four years later in 2015, 40, sorry, four. You're like, what? Four? No, 40 years later, 2015, it was $79,263. That sounds great, right? It's a lot more. In four decades, the average US salary went up almost six times, 5.7.5 times to be exact. But how much you make is only important when you factor in how much things cost. You know, how far does that money go? This this is where inflation fucks you. In 1975, the average price of a new car was 3,800 bucks. 3,800 bucks, 1975. 2015, 33,560. So in 1975, buying a new car would eat up 27.5% of the average annual income. 2015 eats up 42% of the average annual income. That's a big fucking difference, big difference. 
Right? That's, that's almost, that's just, that's basically 15% more. That's, that's a crazy. The average cost of a loaf of bread in 1975, 28 cents. 2015, $1.48. 40 years, average U.S. salary went up 5.7.5 times. Cost of bread went up 5.28 times. That's good, right? You can buy bread now. You can buy more bread now. But can you live in a house while you eat that fucking bread? The average price of a home in December of 1975 was $45,900. Average price in December of 2015, $352,500. Holy shit. $45,900 compared to $352,500. Huge jump, much bigger percentage of annual salary as well. And while I couldn't find a 1975 to 2015 comparison for rent, which is arguably the most important number when it comes to not living on the street, I did find a 1950 to 2000 comparison for the median cost of rent in America already adjusted for inflation. And these are the most important numbers of the whole show to me. In 1950, typical rental cost $257 a month in today's dollars. In 2000, 602, over two and a third times more expensive. What the fuck? And in some places, much worse. In California, where many homeless live, as we have learned, it was 256 a month to rent your average 1950 rental in today's dollars. In 2000, 747, just under three times as much. That's ridiculous. Could you afford your rent if it was suddenly three times as expensive as it is now? Statistically, fuck no. And that huge jump in the cost of rent in relation to inflation is a major, major, major contributor to homelessness. Now let's look at some other causes. Chronic masturbation has led to a lot of homelessness in the last couple of years. Roughly 40% of America's homeless are chronic masturbators. They masturbate anywhere from 20 to 40 times a day. And this is a mental illness. They cannot help it. They have to masturbate at least 20 times a day or the world will stop moving according to that's how their brains think. They're trying to help keep people from dying by constantly jerking off. And that's why if you do see them on the street, do not interfere with it. It's part of a mental illness. And a lot of chronic masturbators, if you try to interfere with it, they will fucking karate chop your goddamn neck off. And none of that is true about the master. That was just, I just fucking made that up right now. <laughs> Can you imagine though, if there was studies and they're like, yeah, it's just too much masturbation. It's too much. There's a new, it's a new what if there was like a zombie type illness and instead of making people want to eat brains, it just made them want to jerk off all the time. Can you imagine how the economy would collapse if it was like there was a contagious disease that made you just continually jerk off? <laughs> okay. No, let's talk about mental illness, which I probably clearly suffer from, from just having all that stuff just pop up in my head. The deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, another factor we've already talked about. It has its roots in the civil rights, civil liberties movements of the 1960s, you know, which envisioned more fulfilling lives for those who had been languishing in understaffed psychiatric hospitals like we talked about, you know, through new medications and robust community-based services. The number of patients living in state hospitals dropped from 535,000 in 1960 to just 137,000 in 1980. California saw a dramatic reduction in state hospital beds from 37,000 in 1955 to just 2,500 in 1983, which is a problem because there wasn't suddenly less, a lot, a lot uh, you know, there wasn't suddenly just a lot less people who were mentally ill. There were many more people. As the world's population has exploded, it only makes sense that so have the amount of mentally ill people. Funding has just gone away. Funding for the needed housing and community-based services pr uh, proved inadequate. 
And as cheap housing disappeared, vast numbers of previously institutionalized individuals with severe and persistent mental illness or those who might have gone to institutions in earlier eras drifted out onto the streets and into temporary shelters. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 6.3% of the population suffers from severe mental illness, defined as long-standing mental illnesses, typically psychosis, that cause moderate to severe disability of prolonged duration. Given that the number of, of adults 18 and over in the U.S. in 2010 was rough, estimated to be roughly 234,564,000 people, that would mean roughly 14.8 million of those people had severe mental illness. Experts polled by the Treatment Advocacy, Advocacy Center estimated that about 50 beds per 100,000 people would meet needs for acute and long-term care. But in some states, the number of available beds was as low as five per 100,000 people. Thus, many people who desperately need residential psychiatric treatment just can't obtain it. There just isn't the beds. So they're out on the streets. You know, they're shitting on the fucking sidewalk. They're yelling at you when you walk by. Another factor is underemployment. This is an interesting term. I had not thought about previous to this suck. We hear about unemployment rates all the time, but what about underemployment? Underemployment is the condition in which people in the labor force are employed at less than full-time or regular jobs or at jobs inadequate with respect to their training or economic needs. Many people that are currently experiencing homelessness fall into this group. It makes uh, you know good bottom line economic sense for a lot of major retailers and other large corporations that have a lot of part-time employees that they don't have to provide benefits to as opposed to full-time employees. But this isn't good for homelessness. Isn't good for those people. While the U.S. employment rate was 4.7% as of May 2016, the U.S. underemployment rate at that time, 13.7%. That's a big percentage. As we've touched on, a lack of affordable housing and the limited scale of housing assistance programs have contributed to the current housing crisis and to homelessness. Here's some additional info on that aspect of our homeless situation. Investors in low-income housing developments are discouraged and even forbidden from building low-income apartments in many major cities due to a variety of zoning and other laws. And I got to admit, I feel a little guilty about this one. I am part of this problem. I struggle with the not-in-my-backyard mentality. Very easy to go full social justice warrior and scream about elitists and, and you know uh, policies and how unfair this is. However, I live you know near the East Sherman District in Coeur d'Alene, which is where the Suck Dungeon is located. And we first bought our house, Lindsay and I, back in 2015, there was a lot of low-income transitional housing in the area and treatment centers and drug and alcohol counting centers. And guess what else? A fuck ton of addicts and sex offenders. And call me crazy, but I do not like living right down the street from some sort of pedophile sanctuary or a lot of people, you know, engaged in hard drug abuse. But the last two years, the city changed some laws, such as limiting how long someone can stay in a variety of low-income pay-by-the-day, week-or-month motels. You know, there's a lot of them around here where a lot of sex offenders live. Thank you, National Registry website for allowing me to find them. And a lot of this transitional housing is going away, which is terrible for families and individuals using these places to try and get back on their feet and not be homeless. But it is also awesome for other parents already living in these neighborhoods, hoping to have less people struggling with drug addiction or people with crimes against children, you know, that are on their criminal records living in the area. Again, this is a complicated issue. It's easy to rail on about how the homeless or borderline homeless shouldn't be kicked out of a neighborhood when it's not your neighborhood. You know, back in West LA, Lindsay and I, uh, we did not have an in-apartment washer or dryer in our apartment building. We had to walk down to the building's laundry room. And the door to that laundry room was in a poor, poorly lit little walkway that shot out of an alley. So basically an alley shooting off from another alley. Very kind of hidden. And there were two dumpsters, one for our building, one for the building next door, right kind of blocking the door, kind of hiding the door, but just about six feet away. And guess who often slept around those dumpsters? 
several dudes in the area, homeless guys, clearly struggling with mental health issues and drug dependency. Did I feel bad for them? Yep, I sure did. This one guy in particular, I'll never forget him. You know, I see him there a lot. I gave him uh, clothes, gave him a blanket, gave him food, gave him cash from time to time. Did I like them being there when Lindsay needed to walk down to do laundry though when I was out of town? Fuck no. I worried about her safety a lot, right? She eventually talked me into trying to do that stuff. She's like, give money to a shelter, but not to them because then they're just going to keep hanging around. And then I got to be fucking terrified going to do the laundry. And you ended up calling the police several times to try and like relocate them, right? Because they didn't want something happening to her. You know, I, I don't like to see some stranger hurting in an alley. Also don't want to worry about that stranger high on something or having some kind of psychotic episode hurting somebody I love. Very complicated, very complex. According to HUD, in recent years, a shortage of affordable housing has hit renters with extremely low incomes. The hardest federal support for low-income housing fell 49% from 1980 to 2003. About 200,000 low-income rental housing units are now being destroyed annually. That's not good. We're going to have more people on the streets. Budget cuts have also made it harder for people to either avoid becoming homeless or recover from homelessness. The recession of the 80s resulted in deep cuts to the HUD budget, which decreased from approximately $29 billion a year in 1976 to approximately $17 billion in 1990. That led directly to reductions in the budget uh, authority for housing assistance from almost $19 billion in 76 to about $11 billion in 1990 and in subsidized housing for poor Americans. Lack of affordable health care has been a problem as well that contributes to homelessness. For families and individuals struggling to pay rent, a serious illness or disability can start a downward spiral into homelessness, beginning with a lost job. Think about the McFoo bars. Depletion of savings to pay for care and eventual eviction. One in three Americans or 86.7 million people are uninsured. Right? Of those uninsured, 30.7% are under 18 in 2007 to 2008. Four out of five people that were uninsured were members of working families. It's not just lazy bums. Now let's talk about something that contributes to homelessness that certain social justice warriors will not want to address, but it is a real factor in some cases, and that's bad personal choices. Should you take heroin? Fuck no. Should you commit a bunch of crimes so that no one will ever hire you? No. Should you decide to not do your homework and then drop out of school? Fuck no. Should you be reckless with your money, your reputation, your body? No. In my experience, blaming society for poor personal choices doesn't seem to really help get anybody anywhere, including getting somebody off the streets. For some people, being homeless is a choice. We also have to consider this. Not doing this topic any justice if we pretend this is not a contributing factor in some cases. It's become very popular, in my opinion, in society in general now to deflect personal responsibility. Jesus Christ, everybody has a fucking condition. Everybody has an excuse. Very rare, in my opinion, for people to take responsibility for their shitty choices. You can't get a job because you're depressed and you're depressed because you came from a broken home. Okay, all right, valid. But you know what? But outside of a small percentage of people who suffer from truly debilitating chemical and or severe depression, most people not too sad to work. Not saying your problems aren't real. Not saying your sadness isn't valid. I'm saying that if we all stop showing up to work and stop doing our jobs because we just, you know, fucking felt a little off that day, the whole fucking nation's going to be homeless. Hardest moment in my adult life so far was when my first wife, mother of my two kids, told me she was leaving me and that she'd met somebody else she'd fallen in love with. Felt like my guts had been tore out from my body. As a child of divorce, I was determined not to go through one myself. It was my worst fear. I knew how much it would devastate Kyler Monroe, and it did devastate them, and I wanted to throw myself into a fucking pit of despair. What I did was headline a show at a club in Boise, Idaho, about an hour after getting the news. And I had a good show. Was it fun? Didn't want to be there. Felt pretty fucking weird to be making strangers laugh while at the same time I felt like I was dying inside and I was contemplating suicide. But I did it because that's what I've been hired to do. I saw a counselor. I fought not to give up. I felt I owed that to Kyler Monroe. Best way to not be homeless for most of us, separate your work, personal life, do everything you fucking possibly can do to get a job. And when you have a job, work as hard as you fucking can to keep it. Gut that shit out. Gut it through the hard, you know, the hard moments of your life. I was working on this suck at midnight. 
when I had to be uh, uh, up at uh, 5 a.m. to drive in Kyler for, for jazz band rehearsal because he's a fucking nerd <laughs> trying to ruin my life with his goddamn jazz drumming. Uh, he is good. I'm proud. But geez. but seriously, though, I lost uh, sleep again because, you know, that's what my job requires. My harshness on this subject, by the way, doesn't come from just wanting to, like, you know, look down and, and brag or judge. It comes from a place of love. I want you to kick ass in life. I really do. Life is way more fun when shit's working out. And shit has a better chance to work out when you work really fucking hard. If you want to get the most meaning and joy you can out of this life, I firmly believe that getting mentally tough, overcoming hardships, busting your ass the best way to do it. Get counseling if you need it. Just don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself and pass the buck. That is a loser mentality. I'm old enough to know people who have had that mentality for decades. And I've known people who have had that. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I want for decades. And time after time, the people who hustle and grind and fight and slow to blame, you know, others are far, far happier, more successful in every discernible way than the woe is me Debbie Downers. Sure, sometimes people who do everything right still get fucked. That's the exception to the rule, in my opinion, and what I've seen in life. And I know, as Jesse Dobner also pointed out when we worked on this one, uh, you know, worked a lot on this one, some people legit just are not wired to be hustlers. However, that's not an excuse not to at least try and hustle. Get counseling, get meds if you need them. Try, try, try. If you're not given life, you're everything. Why the fuck should anyone feel sorry for you? And if you want to say, oh, it must be nice telling us how to live from your place of white male privilege. That's a popular thing that people like to throw around now. Fine. You know what? You're the one who's going to fucking lose if you don't do this. It's your life. You want to spend it complaining and talking about how unfair it is, you know? All right, do that if you want to. Let me know how far that gets you. Overall, mm, not going to work out well. That old cliche of attitude is everything really seems to have a lot of truth in it. Hail fucking Nimrod. Stepping down off my soapbox in three, two, one. Okay. We talked about a lot. Uh, We talked a lot about, you know, causes and reasons so far, but what about solutions? There are a lot of ideas out there regarding how we should try and curb homelessness. One of the major questions is, why can't we just make more affordable housing? First off, ironically, very costly to build low-income apartments and houses in a lot of urban areas where land is pretty pricey. There are federal low-income housing tax credits that can help certain developers build 100% affordable housing, but developers compete for those tax credits, and there aren't enough to help build affordable housing, affordable, excuse me, housing for all the people who need it, much less for those who don't have homes in the first place. Another important possible solution is called Housing First. I mentioned this when I talked about this month's charity. I really like this. Housing First, this idea first bounced around in the late 80s, early 90s. Then it you know, became supported by HUD, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development shortly thereafter. The idea with Housing First is that the first priority, unlike many other solutions, is not to change someone's nature or give them, you know, or, or even their economic situation, but to build homes and get them in those homes. It's such a basic human need to have a shelter of one's own. Housing First is a program that places individuals in community housing instead of shelters, along with support such as intensive case management. Research indicates that in follow-up studies, individuals who receive Housing First were more likely to end up in permanent housing situations compared to other groups, such as those with case management alone. In a study of veterans with mental illness, those who received vouchers for Housing Plus case management had much better housing incomes than those with just case management or outreach work, and the voucher program was uh, also more cost-effective for taxpayers overall than other programs. Why is temporary housing such an important step towards getting permanent housing? Well, maybe because, you know, partly it just keeps people away from vices that might be contributing to keeping them uh, homeless. Like if you're no longer sleeping next to somebody smoking crack or shooting up heroin or snorting meth, you're probably going to be a little bit less likely to do it yourself. I do think that's that's kind of a common sense thing. Uh, Like I compare it to how Lindsay and I uh, do health-wise. We have a bunch of candy in the house compared to when we don't. Essentially, if it's easily accessible, I eat a lot more of it. 
Sometimes it really is that simple. Like people want to ask me like, have you lost weight lately? I've actually been working out the least amount of my entire adult life. I've been, I've been losing weight because Lindsay is fucking torturing me. Basically. She's been, she doesn't, she throws away treats I have in the office and she's thrown away all of our treats at home. And she knows that I just won't take the time. I won't take the initiative to go get it myself if it's not readily available. Like literally that alone. I say, and she fucking guilts the shit out of me about the road. She checks in with me. What do you, what do you have to eat today? She doesn't care about, she's just, you know, it's, it's, but it works. If you're not around, you know, certain influences, it's, uh, you're gonna have a better outcome. You know, it's like, I remember my mom being really hard on who I hung around with as a kid. And I, re- I appreciate that now. Who you choose to spend time with is important. You have a, you have a lot of toxic influences around in your life. You're gonna make a lot more toxic choices. So how does this housing first work? Well, the homeless are given permanent housing on a normal lease that can range from a self-contained apartment to a housing block with round the clock support. Tenants pay rent are entitled to receive housing benefits. Depending on their income, they may contribute to the cost of the support services they receive. The rest is covered by local government. This is especially important because shelters can be violent or otherwise unsustainable housing. There were 826 violent incidents in New York City homeless shelters last year, according to uh, the New York Daily News. This includes uh, sexual assault and domestic violence. Places where housing first uh, has worked particularly well are in Finland and Scotland, and its effectiveness is currently being determined here in the United States and in Canada. Social services, also an important part of the homeless solution. Housing alone, not enough. In the above model, housing is the essential thing provided, but if they don't get social support, then you just have a welfare state where taxpayers are supporting those living in subsidized housing. That's why social services also essential. And we need to make these social services more accessible. Many of today's homeless unable to navigate the maze of complicated programs and procedures intended to help them. The same bureaucracy that frustrates all of us can really utterly stymie those of us with mental handicaps or drug-addled brains, right? Complicated governmental uh, application process annoy the fucking shit out of me. Big private sector businesses develop user-friendly apps and websites all the time. Billions and billions in taxpayer money go into the government every year, and they almost always have the shittiest websites, apps, and application processes. It's unnecessary. Reminds me of the bullshit I deal with as a small business owner now. So many forms, so many changing laws, and codes and people with shitty attitudes after talking to you on the phone. So much that sign this in this exact spot with this exact color ink, initial here exactly, have it notarized there, make sure the date is marked this way exactly, or we will mail it back, bullshit. And they will mail it back, as I've found. If Lindsay and I didn't use an accounting company, I don't think we could keep up with it all. Like when we sell merch, for example, we have to file sales tax information in almost every state people buy it in. Oftentimes, additional info on the counties people purchase it in. Sometimes also additional info for the fucking city for every purchase because every place wants to cut. If we weren't able to hire someone to do all that paperwork, we would not have time. Literally wouldn't have time in our life for an online store. Uh, we wouldn't have time to keep it legal. Luckily, there are now some apps that are, can do this automatically. Uh, private apps, by the way, they have to pay a subscription for it. God forbid the government make it easy to collect their own fucking money. And that's just for sales tax. There's employee taxes, property taxes, changing deductions, workman's comp requirements, additional legally required insurance obligations, on and on and on. Tons of offices that talk to me like I'm a prisoner in a cell instead of a paying customer and I want to reach through the phone and I want to break their fucking necks. And then there's the, you know, the everyday stuff with the DMV and similar governmental departments. That, that stuff always confuses me. And I'm not struggling with mental illness. At least nothing has been diagnosed. I'm not dependent on opiates or anything like that. I'm not a single mom or single dad with five kids, you know? <laughs> For fuck's sake, there has to be a better way to make accessing the correct social programs easier for the people who need them. Again, if tech startups can make apps, it can easily teach you a new language or navigate vast online tutorial libraries or make, you know, a custom music and video playlist easily navigatable 
or edit videos and home movies with incredible production value, why can't the government build apps for social workers to use so they can easily navigate social programs for their clients? Come on, Uncle Sam, step up your accessibility game. Fucking assholes. Supposed to work for us, not vice versa. Uh, Additional welfare has also been considered a potential solution to homelessness. Uh, in, in a capitalist society, raising welfare payouts is another option, as they've done in many Scandinavian nations. It's been tried in Vancouver, Canada, to raise welfare rates simply based on the idea that it's cheaper to help people pay their rent rather than rescue them after they failed. has been a potential solution postulated for years in the U.S. Not generally a popular idea, but would it work? Depends on how it's done. It could. Finland put more money into welfare in the form of Housing First initiatives we talked about. Saw its homeless population drop by over 60% from 2008 to 2016. Other solutions may include better education programs, somehow miraculously ending the drug war. I don't see that happening. Better treatment centers and even universal basic income, an economic program celebrated in some economic schools of thought, currently being tried in a number of beta programs. Uh, Universal basic income, UBI, is a form of social security that guarantees a certain amount of money to every citizen within a given governed population without having to pass a test or fulfill any kind of work requirement. Uh, Every universal basic income plan can be different in terms of amount or design. For example, experiments in Canada, Finland, India, Nambia have received international media attention. The first and only national referendum about basic income was held in Switzerland in 2016. Uh, Besides helping the homeless, many experts believe it's going to offset a future where uh, automation will shrink the workforce. One U.S. presidential candidate wants the U.S. to adopt this approach, wants to give every American $1,000 a month. And I'll be honest, I don't like it. I don't, I'm not sure that I totally understand it, but I, but I don't like I've read several articles. I just don't see how it's going to work. Based on the current U.S. population, giving each citizen $1,000 a month comes out to just under $4 trillion a year, roughly the same amount as the entire annual federal operating budget. How is the federal government supposed to do that and pay to keep our military going and fund agencies like the FBI, CIA, various other education programs? How is it supposed to keep our federal airports going, keep our interstate freeway system from crumbling to a swamp of ponds and potholes and on and on? But it's a theory if you want to spend some time digging into it further. Other potential solutions, you know, train more young workers, give them better job skills, give addicts time to heal. A lot of people think that, you know, treatment centers and studies have shown that 28-day treatment center is just not enough, that if they had longer, uh, you know, time to to heal, they would would get out of that revolving door of constantly being back in treatment centers over and over, and that longer-term centers would actually be cheaper, more cost-effective than, you know, constantly going in and out of short-term centers. So that's something that's talked a lot uh, You know, and about 2.1 million people in the U.S. suffer from substance abuse uh, use disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers in 2012. An estimated 467,000 addicted to heroin. This is a real problem. The number of unintentional overdose deaths from prescription pain relievers soared in the U.S. uh, more than quadrupling since 1999. While the epidemic is notable for affecting people from any race, gender, socioeconomic status, or other identifier, its effects are most felt uh, by people who are experiencing homelessness. Evidence indicates that substance use disorders are known risk factors for homelessness, and data clearly shows that substance abuse and overdose disproportionately impact homeless people. 2017 survey by the U.S. Conference of Mayors found that 68% of cities reported that substance abuse was the largest cause for homelessness for single adults. Substance abuse also reported as one of the top three causes for family homelessness. In another study, 25% of homeless people surveyed identified drug use as the primary reason for homelessness. 2013 study to determine the leading risk factors for homelessness among veterans indicated that substance abuse may have the highest impact on relative risk for homelessness in this population, even more than bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Recent study in Boston showed that the overdose has surpassed HIV as a leading cause of death among homeless adults. 
And sadly, a lot of these drug users got their initial addiction from a prescription. You know, they're not all just people who made some terrible life choice to shoot up heroin because they thought it would make their music sound better. Some just hurt their knee playing pickup basketball or working on a construction site or something like that. Got a powerful painkiller prescription, had the kind of brain chemistry that really likes opioids. Some of us really do get unlucky with stuff. You know, really important to remember that. And uh, yeah, it spiraled into, you know, an opioid addiction. I've tried a lot of drugs, never felt the pull of addiction. Why? Because I'm lucky. Addiction just doesn't run in my family. Others not so lucky like my stepbrother, Jake, who had a totally different family tree. He got addicted to heroin and it ended in suicide. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the various, you know, factors, various causes, various looks of homelessness, various uh, governmental attempts to try to like fix it. What can you personally do to help eliminate or at least reduce homelessness? I'd like to think that's what this episode is building to. Uh, I'm going to share those thoughts that I have uh, as far as I think what we could do right after I share today's Idiots of the Internet's thoughts. Idiots of the Internet. Today, we head to a message board website called Straight Dope for our idiot segment. Checking out a little thread with a variety of thoughts on the homeless. Uh, Some of them are terrible. As I'm sure you're not surprised, the first one is shared by Dan Blather. I think Blather might be uh, asshole in some other language. Not, not totally sure. Dan writes, I hate the homeless. <laughs> I know since I'm on the left, I'm supposed to think that the homeless are just down in their luck, but I fucking hate them. Huh. Well, uh, tell us how you really feel, Dan. Don't, don't hold back. Dan continues with, the bus I took this morning stunk of vomit. Someone, <laughs> someone shit in our store doorway <laughs> during the day. For the fourth time in three weeks, the mess, the stink, constantly being harassed for money, having customers afraid to come downtown. I'm sick of shoppers, workers, and residents being inconvenienced by people who give nothing back to society. The crazies need to be forced to take their meds. The drunks need to sober up and the young people with their fucking dogs can go back to whatever city they hitchhiked here from. Oh, and you church-based charities providing free food, go set up shop in the suburbs someplace rather than the middle of the historic section of town. Businesses pay an extra tax for the privilege of being downtown. Why do they have to put up with the dregs of society? Okay, more after the edit. Our free public transportation zone may have to be scrapped because the homeless ride it all day to keep out of the rain. We can't have public toilets because hookers use them to turn tricks, addicts use them to shoot up, and dealers use them for bazaars. Okay, a lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts, Dan. I get the anger. I do. Makes me think of Lindsay trying to use that laundry room again. Uh, I think of the piles of human shit that were all over the sidewalk near my West LA apartment, an apartment that costs far more every month than my mortgage in Idaho does now, but fuck them all. I don't, I don't think that attitude's going to work here. I don't think that's the right approach. But again, you know, Dan, Dan's venting. Maybe it's just an angry moment. Maybe he's not an asshole all of the time. He, he sounds like he's been dealing with some frustrations for quite some, quite some time. Uh, then Kampf Elf writes, well, the only solution I see that isn't a huge drain in the public coffers is a return to debtors' prisons and work farms. That might be seen as cruel and unusual, though. It seems that the money that went to the maintenance of the public restrooms would pay for one porta potty and one security guard. Let them line up. How about special ID cards issued only to landowners or leaseholders that has a magnetic strip or mag strip to open public lavatories? Okay, okay, Re- reasonable, reasonable. I like this way, way more than I like Dan's comment. I'm not 100% opposed to any of this, including a version of debtor's prison. I mean, to be shelter, way to be productive. And if there's a mental health facility, a school, drug rehab center attached, a way to function at a healthier level and improve your life. I like you. I like you, Kampfelf. But then Kampfelf writes, eh, fuck it. Round them up and shoot them. Jeez. 
ah, man, maybe I don't like you so much now. Uh, Not sure rounding up and shooting the mentally ill or the temporarily down in their luck is like maybe the best plan overall. Maybe not completely thought out. And I'm someone who's not opposed to useful violence in certain situations. Anyone who's listened to a few episodes of this uh, knows that to be true. But, But that seems excessive. Booker 57 then writes, bullets cost money. Pit graves and mass burials. Shoot them in and fill and backfill the soil. Why, yes, I've had problems with the homeless before. Thanks for asking. Jesus Christ. Where did you write that post from? Booker 57? Some kind of Hitler youth camp? Fuck you. The, the homeless kids too? Orphan Emmy? Right? The, just parents down in their luck a little bit? You're going to fucking put them in mass graves too? Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't think Booker 57 is a fan of complex solutions. I don't think uh, Booker 57 likes to, to think in nuance. Uh, Robert Liguori writes, Class warfare also costs money. I'm not an economist, but I'm reasonably sure we can provide warmth, shelter, and food to every person in America and have it cost considerably less than the effects of organized, uh, than the effects of an organized campaign of murder against the poor. I like you. I like you, Robert. Can I call you Bobbert? You make a great point, Bobbert. Uh, I do think we can find a solution that doesn't involve execution that may in fact actually be cheaper than mass execution as well. I, I think we should at least try it. Call me crazy. Before we go to just open graves, we just throw people in who are, you know, going through a rough patch. Maybe we could try, I don't know, just uh, something else, anything else. Uh, Spezza writes, if you do not give people an out from capitalism, what do you expect? Why should I have to labor? Of course I should indeed have to in order to sustain myself, but why should I be forced to do it within your economic framework? I see the homeless as pioneers. And And then they write, no, I don't. They stink and bother me with their laziness but at least they're doing the only thing they can do to overthrow this tyrannical system of wealth accumulation. So yes, in that manner, I do applaud them. It takes a lot of courage to be homeless. Okay, roll back and forth in this one. If you really want to solve homelessness, if the government really did care, we'd have kept Australia or insert your own viable island of choice as a prison colony. Don't want to contribute, don't want to accept prison for infringing upon our ways of governance, exile. Seems reasonable. Seems a lot more reasonable than just throwing unwilling people into jail who commit the same crime again, given the opportunity. Uh, okay, I, you do bring up some interesting points, Spiza. I think it's a little too simplistic again. Maybe not all of them are lazy, as we've learned today. Many of them severely psychologically damaged or just don't have economically uh, valued skill sets or support groups. Thinking that they're all just lazy, convenient thinking, but I like that you're throwing out some options. I like that better than the throw them in mass graves. Dan Blatter doesn't like it. Dan Blatter doesn't care for where this threat is heading. He pipes back in with, Making this into a class thing is disingenuous. The poor, more than anyone, need good public facilities, libraries, parks, public transportation, and public toilets. The problem is that all of these are endangered when you let drunks, addicts, criminals, and teenage hobby homeless run amok. Okay, uh, again, presentation a little harsh, but you know what? I like you again, Dan. You do bring up a great point. Who does homelessness hurt the most other than the homeless themselves? Arguably, the working poor who live in the same neighborhoods and are trying to use the same services. So I do think that is something to think about that I had not thought about before. I got to say, this Idiot to the Internet is giving me a lot of new things to think about, a lot more than I thought it would, a lot more than I thought would come from this. Cheswick Sense does not give me anything good to think about. They take the easy mental road with their post, just writing, I don't feel one iota of remorse for these people. In my eyes, it's impossible to be poor in America. 
These guys can't get welfare checks, food stamps. They can't get a Pell Grant to go to school. The only way to be poor is to be drugged up, drunk, or crazy. It's kind of a fucking shitty view of the mentally ill. Well, if you don't want to be fucking homeless, then don't be crazy. You lunatic son of a bitch. It's that simple. You're in America. Stop being crazy. Stop being a drunk, crazy addict. And then you can have a fucking Pell Grant. Uh, I don't think there's anything to be learned from Chesik Sense's commentary, other than maybe just a reminder that I think a lot of people think that way. Uh, don't fight the hypothetical. Goes even harder in the same direction. <laughs> Posting, take a stroll through downtown Santa Cruz sometimes. These people are homeless because they are lazy. It's ridiculous to allow people to behave that way in a civilized community. The piss, or they, I think we're supposed to write, they piss and shit in the streets. They vomit. They're drunks. Aggressive panhandling. Lack of public toilets. Fuck them. <laughs> A lot of anger in this one too. Uh, I like the um, the argument that they're shitting in the street because they're lazy. I don't. If you're shitting in the street, I, I don't think you're doing so primarily out of laziness. I think you have a lot more going on than just a lack of work ethic. If you're just regularly taking dumps just in the street or on the side of the road, I got time to walk to a bathroom. I got time to wipe my ass. I would rather have a painful rash and a war raw butthole than walk a few feet to a public restroom. I am very mentally healthy. I have no drug dependency issues. I just don't feel like working for my shits. Right, just good old-fashioned laziness. That's why I throw up in the streets too. If I had a little more work ethic, I'd save my pukes for a garbage can. I think, I think you see how absurd that logic is. Someone's just puking, shitting out in the streets. They're not doing so because they didn't feel like walking a little further. They're doing so because they're fu- they're fucking at the end of the like they're in such a shitty place in their life, struggling with so many things. I mean, I still I still get it. That it's fucking annoying because I've lived in neighborhoods when there's plenty of human shit on the sidewalk. It's still not fun. Still got to do something about it, but it's not like they're just ah, it's fucking just too lazy to take a shit in a normal place. Uh, user Zofia uh, adds. Um, oh, and don't ever believe anybody in a city who tells you they can't get enough to eat because this is bullshit. There are enough soup kitchens and food banks in every city I've ever been. Anybody willing to take the charity is not going hungry. Unfortunately, you can't get a fifth of whiskey at First Baptist free lunch. A lot of these guys get checks every month, you know, pension, welfare, disability, VA, whatever. The library is like a tomb with the first of the month because they hole up in a cheap hotel and drink until the check runs out. Okay, I do hear you, Sophia. Some of them do have the money to get things going. This makes me consider work camps again for certain cases. I'm going to talk about this later. Work camps with drug treatment centers. You get arrested so many times in a month for public intoxication, vagrancy stuff. Maybe off to some kind of detox camp. Maybe a little work camp you go. Finally, we hear from Cubs fan who who seems just to be a terrible fucking human being. Uh, Cubs fan doesn't think that this is a problem any of us should have to fix that we need to deal with. Uh, He heartlessly writes, or she, I guess I don't know the gender. Fuck that. (laughs) Just in response to the threat in general. Just fuck that. That's a strong opening. You're telling me that if I don't like what someone is doing, it's my responsibility to provide them with something else to do? If someone robs a bank because they couldn't find a job, was it my fault because I didn't give him money to find a job? Guess what? You're not a fucking dog. You know where to shit. Find a fucking bucket or something if it's that dire. But don't shit in the doorway to my business, you filthy fucker. This has clearly been happening to this guy a lot. 
The guys that run all over the intersections begging for money from stop cars are great examples of this. These fucking people, all caps, can get jobs. Washing dishes, mowing lawns, shoveling shit, whatever menial labor task you want to put here. They choose not to. They don't want to. I love that argument. They don't want to. So they spend their days approaching uncomfortable people trapped at stoplights to beg for their money instead. Don't come in here and tell me all the ways they can't get those jobs because the matter of the, the fact of the matter is they can, but they don't want to. I wish I could hold their heads down on the sidewalk and curb stomp every one of those motherfuckers and then stick my rock hard dick in their asses until there was nothing left of their body but a pile of fucking blood and laziness. I wish I could take their fucking babies, punt them through fucking field goal posts, and then stomp them to death. Then find anyone who ever gave them. No, I, I may, I'm going off a little. That's 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 what I imagine them wanting to type. Uh, they stopped it. They can't, but they don't want to. Not helping Cubs fan. Uh, I work hard too. I've always worked multiple jobs. If you wanted to insult me, the worst thing you could say is that I'm lazy. Take pride in my work ethic, but I still don't think this is a laziness issue. A little more complicated than that. Cubs fan truly just posted an idiots of the idiot <laughs> idiots of the internet comment here. However, this little section did give me, I think the best idea I can think of, uh, of how we might be able to solve part of the homeless problem. So uh, very thankful for today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Okay, so how do we help eradicate homelessness? After immersing myself in this topic, of, of all the ideas I've heard that are currently being tried out, I do like the concept of housing first the best. That's why we're donating to an organization that supports uh, that concept. You know, remove someone from a lot of the toxic influences and immediately give them something to feel good about, a place to call their home, give them something to fight for as they also get needed social services and drug rehab if necessary. And also for certain chronic homeless drug users uh, who seem very resistant to rehab, uh, for certain people who, who maybe really are lazy and just don't want to work. I mean, I know there, there's got to be some percentage of that in the homeless population, I do have a, a crazy idea taken from idiots of the internet. And maybe I'm an idiot for thinking it. But what about trying to introduce a new form of labor camp? Not a gulag, not a North Korean labor or re-education camp, not exactly a debtor's prison, but close. What if, if you were convicted of certain crimes, you had to work in a camp slash prison that made something that was profitable? Is that possible? Some kind of special camp with a drug rehab facility attached with mental health treatment available. And you have to go work at a factory or something of that ilk to make something both useful and profitable. You know, you get arrested for vagrancy and public intoxication like X amount of times in a certain time period. And you're sentenced not to prison where you're just going to add to the national tax burden, but to a center where you are essentially forced to learn a trade and work a trade. Don't want to work eight hours a day. Solitary confinement then with no books, no television, nothing. Work or be punished. Str get, be given strong incentive to want to try and, you know, contribute. And this is for people who are going to be back on the streets. I mean, I get it if you're not going to have any incentive because you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. But when, you know, you're, you're just, when your problem is just not want you have any job, not being able to take care of yourself, what if there was a center where you're, you learn a trade, where you get counseling, you get off drugs, where you get mental health treatment. I don't know what you'd make there, fucking Ritz crackers. Tampons, Halloween clown masks, uh, I don't know, peanut butter, showbiz. I don't know what, I don't know what, but but could a facility like that be possible? 
something that either turns a profit or, or costs much, much less in prison. Some place where you learn a skill, they keep you employed once you left, some place to clean up, you know? And also if it turned a profit, if we could figure that out, then at the end of your sentence, you, you get some of that money. You, you get a, you know, a place to stay, you get some uh, help with job placement, get a head start so you're not just given a bus ticket and just sent on your way to, you know, have incentive to cause a problem again. I don't know if this is the best idea, but after thinking about this topic a lot this past week, it's the best idea I, I've been able to come up with in addition to programs that already exist. If you have something better, help us solve this problem. Email, email timesuck at bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We'd love to hear, you know, some, some options that you have that are hopefully better than the last guy on the edits of the internet, internet. Hopefully it's not just fuck them. Maybe not send that email. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't get us anywhere. And, and, and finally, this is not just a U.S. problem. Um, I know we have a growing amount of listeners in Sweden, Norway, New Zealand, Ireland, Australia, Wales, Scotland, England, Canada, and more. And I'm sure your own nation has its homeless problems as well. In fact, I know they do. It is estimated that over 150 million people are homeless worldwide, while Habitat for Humanity estimates that over 1.6 billion people around the world live in some form of inadequate shelter. According to most survey and census data available, the nation with the worst homeless problem, at least as percentage of their population, is Guinea, with over 68% of their people living without homes. Granada second with 56%, Haiti third with 23%, Egypt fourth with 18%, Nigeria fifth with almost 17%. Next on the list, South Africa, 14% of their population estimated to be homeless, followed by Honduras, 12.3%, Zimbabwe at 8%, and Peru at 5.6%. All of those terrible percentages. Uh, Poland, if you count people who are primarily of Polish descent, uh, Poland has 100% homeless percentage. But it's kind of like, there's an asterisk though, because, you know, they're not humans. They're kind of like a monster, humanish thing. And any place that allows a Polish, you know, quote unquote person, you know, to sleep inside of it can't actually be called a human home. It turns into a, a cave of some sort, or maybe like a like a goblin burrow, or a, or a sin bunker. Uh, that's why my my wife Lindsay she sleeps in the tree fort at night. I haven't talked about that before in the show, but there's no fucking way she's gonna sleep in the house. Why don't I let Why don't I let fucking gremlins in? You know, why don't I just have a bunch of dogs just run around shitting all over the place? But enough about monsters. Let's let's just talk about humans. Uh, and that's a, of course an inside joke. New listeners, save your emails. As far as the sheer numbers of homeless goes, uh, Nigeria leads the way with over 24 million total people lacking when it comes to housing. South Africa's second with 7 million people. Russia is third with 5 million. I'm guessing some of them in Siberia, fair amount. Indonesia is fourth with over 3 million people being homeless. China fifth at over two and a half million. The United States, United States, excuse me, ranks 12th on the list with over 550,000 people experiencing homeless at any given time, right behind Germany that has over 800,000 homeless as of 2016. Okay. Okay. We covered a lot of ground today. Let's recap and also learn something new with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, some good news. Uh, for the first takeaway is that homelessness overall has decreased over the past decade, starting to rise again recently, but still down overall. Overall in the United States, the number and ratio of people experiencing homelessness has dropped. That is that is nice to see that that is possible, but the problem still persists. Number two, another takeaway is that all of the solutions we looked at, not one by themselves will probably be the answer. Not even my work camp idea, which I'm guessing may get shut down quickly. 
With over 150 million homeless in the world and over 1.6 billion not doing great, no one solution will likely fix this problem, especially with such high varieties of issues from nation to nation. So again, send in some thoughts better than, ha fuck them. Uh, number three, mental illness. It's not just laziness that sends people to the streets. Several estimates indicate that between 20 to 50% of homeless adults have severe mental illness which in turn is associated with adverse outcomes in terms of housing involvement in the criminal justice system, substance abuse, and morbidity. For the mentally ill, homelessness is a recipe for disaster. It is obvious that over the years, we as a people will have to become more understanding and better at treating mental illness. Number four, some kind of good news I didn't emphasize enough. It is important to frame this topic correctly. Humans have been impoverished for 99.99% of the time we've existed. Open markets, private property, basically brand new to the overall human experience. And like with anything new, we're still trying to figure out. Now, to be homeless in America, while incredibly tragic, it's also to be amongst the richest poor people in the history of the world. And I know that sounds awful, but when you factor in the amount of services, caloric intake, lifespans of America's homeless, it is safe to say that being homeless in the U.S. better than almost anywhere on earth, certainly better than uh, being homeless almost any other time on earth. Also, to be homeless just pretty much any place in the world, you're still living better or at least as well as 99.9% of humans have lived, you know, just as recently as like 5,000 years ago. You know, really a couple thousand years ago in just most parts of the world. That's not to say that there isn't massive amounts of work to still be done, nor is it meant to diminish anyone's experiences at all. But in general, to be homeless now is to live well compared to most of humanity's existence. Just trying to throw that in there to make uh, all of this a little less sad. You know, uh, those guys jerking off on Wilshire I got to say, they, did not, they, don't, they didn't seem emaciated. They, uh, you know, and they did seem to be having a pretty good time. Pretty good time. Final takeaway, something I just touched on at the end, volunteering. Uh, a lot can be, actually, I think I forgot to touch on it. I'm touching on it now. A lot can be accomplished by a few people with a good idea. For example, in Spokane, Washington, just a few miles from the Suck Dungeon, there are two people who have made massive impacts on the lives of Spokane's homeless. Just two people. The first is a young man named Billy Sexton. He founded a direct homeless outreach group called The Solution Is Ours, as in H-O-U-R-S, a few years ago. The nonprofit organization consists of Billy, a few friends, and a few donors. They are literally out there on the street each night, handing out sandwiches, handing out pizzas to those who need them. Billy has essentially single-handedly directly improved the lives of many of the homeless people in the Spokane region. Billy's work is not going to end homelessness, but his efforts bring a level of humanity to the streets that is sorely needed. He's improving lives greatly. Another individual in the Spokane area is Officer Jeff Getchell of the Spokane Valley Police Force. On his own, in his spare time, Officer Getchell has collected and distributed hundreds of blankets to area homeless. Officer Getchell directly helps keep many Spokane area homeless alive by keeping them warm in the winter. Jeff's blanket gathering operation has inspired several of his fellow officers to follow suit. It's also inspired a number of benefit concerts to raise money for the homeless. and It led to raised awareness regarding the homeless within the Spokane area community. And you can volunteer as well if you want to, from helping at soup kitchens to collecting items like blankets, toiletries, food, and yes, even money. There are organizations that always need volunteers to help build cheap housing, tiny houses, do upkeep at shelters, hand out supplies, uh, even working to spread the word on the on the internet and in your city, benefit concerts, community meetings, uh, workshops, trade shows, uh, the, the chronic masturbators I talked about earlier, you can uh, volunteer to help kind of jerk them off just to kind of keep the, the world from crashing. There's so many things you can do. Uh, but seriously, Mace Sacks, you can make a big difference in a variety of ways. Hail Nimrod. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, another heavy topic has been sucked. 
Did we get to the bottom of this? Probably not. Did I help raise some awareness, spark some discussions that could lead to some improvements in at least one homeless person's life? Fuck yeah, for sure. Perhaps we'll, uh, you know, be part of the generation that finally puts homelessness to bed. You never know. You never know. Big thanks, as always, to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Bellacamp, Jesse, Guardian of Grammar, Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, and Access Apparel. And congrats to Kate and Logan at Access Apparel, bringing a new new little space new little baby into the world. Mm-hmm. Hail Nimrod. Thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery, bringing so much into the homeless discussion, so much info. Uh, we talked a lot about the homeless community today. We have our own communities here in Time Suck. Almost 10,000 people now in the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. They're doing good, doing things with charities, posting GoFundMe campaigns, helping each other out. Also just discussing topics, sharing memes, joking around with people with a similarly dark sense of humor and more. And if you want even more social interaction, join the roughly 2,500 Time Suckers and Spacers on Discord. Links to both places in the episode description. Next week on Time Suck, we're going back to true crime, to an unsolved mystery this time. Heading to Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to look into a murder spree that's lasted over 30 years. Known as the Texas Killing Fields, this subject has been in the top five of the voting board for the spaces for many, many weeks. Finally won. Very glad to suck this topic. The Texas Killing Fields, it's an area bordering the Calder Oil Field. It's a 25-acre patch of land situated a mile from Interstate Highway 45. Since the early 70s, 30 bodies of murder victims have been found within the Killing Fields area. These are mainly the bodies of girls or young women. Many of these victims, teenagers, a few of them were as young as 12. Ugh. Many other young women who have gone missing from the area with no bodies being found, so there could be many more murders that are unsolved. Authorities think these killings may be the work of a serial killer or serial killers. And combined with, with other murderers throughout the years, several suspects have been pursued and interviewed. There have been a few confessions only to be proven to be false. What's happening along the secluded and desolate Texas highway area with at least 30 cold cases to look at, a bunch of mentally unstable suspects, strange witnesses, government conspiracies, and gun battles, a lot to this topic. When the FBI put together a profile for the potential multi-murderer, they surmised that the man using the killing field as his private dumping ground was a methodical, organized sexual serial killer, one with high intelligence who probably had a history of abusing animals, which makes me even more angry. I'm certainly not stoked about the killing of young women, but animal abuse as well. Why you gotta fucking hurt the fur babies, you son of a bitch. Uh, Tune in next week for our 144th episode, The Texas Killing Fields. Tune in right now to today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Let's start off with some Idaho love from Joe Davitt, Idahoan and Time Sucker. Joe writes, dear patron saint of Mushmouth, just want to take the time to let you know I appreciate you and the Time Suck team. Born and raised in Coeur d'Alene, it's about time someone showed the world we're not just a bunch of potato-humping dipshits, semper-sucking. Thanks, Joe. You know, I love this because it is part of my motivation to do a good job here. The stereotype uh, about Idaho definitely seems to be that the majority of us are just a bunch of idiotic, hillbilly, country fucking bumpkins. Trying my best to not add to that stereotype. That, you know, a lot of cool, a lot of cool folks in Idaho as well. Uh, next up, Scott Socks is one of the many time suckers who educated me on the difference between poisonous and venomous. A lot of emails. Scott writes, Lord of all that sucks, listening to the Darwin suck, and you were talking about poisonous snakes. This is something that has been a pet peeve of mine. Snakes are not poisonous. They are either venomous or non-venomous. They are not toxic to the touch. They do not produce poison. They produce venom. Ergo, they are venomous. 
<laughs> I hear this constantly and I cringe every time. As for why someone would keep them, I have a friend that has numerous species of venomous snakes, including a pair of black mamas. He has handled venomous snakes for 20 plus years. He milks the venom to sell to pharmaceutical and research companies. The dried venom is used to produce anti-venom and in all kinds of research. He has the utmost respect for his animals and has purposely positioned himself close enough to the nearest hospital so that if he were to be bitten by any of his snakes, he has enough time to reach the hospital for treatment. With the exception of the black mamba, you virtually need to be right next door to survive that. Anyway, love the suck, but just had to throw a little knowledge out there for you and many other folks that make the same mistake, Scott in South Carolina. Thank you for that info, Scott, and thanks for giving me an example of why someone would raise poisonous snakes outside of them just being a deranged hillbilly lunatic. Uh, would have never thought of producing anti-venom, which I, which I didn't even know was a word prior to your message. I thought you just misspelled anti-venom, which in fact is not properly a word itself, even though it's used a lot. It's mentioned uh, next to anti-venom in the dictionary. The proper term uh, for an anti-serum containing antibodies against specific poisons, especially those in the venomous snakes, spiders, and scorpions, is actually anti-venom or anti-venom, excuse me, anti-venom. Yeah, did not, didn't, I learned a couple things new there. Thank you. Next up, that guy Dobbs sent an email saying that the main message I'm trying to spread, which is increase your critical thinking skills, is the same message as at least one college professor of his. And that makes this non-doctorate having Idaho mushmouth motherfucker feel pretty good. Dobbs writes, Dear Honorable Sir, Dr. Reverend Esquire, Professor, Chancellor, Grand President, Lord, Majesty, Highness, Holiness, Rabbi, Excellency, the suckiest of them all. Woo! It's a mouthful. I've been listening to your stand-up on Pandora for years now, and you've essentially been up there with the best dark humor stand-ups ever, like your, like your favorite, George Carlin, rest in peace, and that crazy son of a bitch, Doug Stamp. Thank you. That's high praise. Anyways, after finding out about Time Suck Through Pandora, I started listening a few months ago. Now I'm completely caught up, and I'm fiending for more like Charlie Sheen, like a Charlie Sheen Lucifina worshiper. Oh, good. Yeah. Charlie Sheen would love Lucifina. Back to the point, though. I have been noticing all of the PSAs for critical thinking skills and you've been, that you've been slipping into our Time Suck drinks and after hearing your TED Talk and doing some people watching, I'm completely on board with the fear of <laughs> idiocracy. Now to make sense of all this wackadoodleness, I'm writing you. I'm a finance major at the University of North Georgia. I've just started taking my summer semester class, which is the legal environment of business. Sounds hard, actually. With all this critical thinking, uh, positive propaganda, you've been forcefully shoving into my tight virgin brain. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the doctor of law professor chosen to teach my class said that quote, without a doubt that we will all forget most of the things we learn in this class, but, and then she said, I want more than anything for each and every one of you to walk away from my teaching, having a greater knowledge of critical thinking, because that will continue to help you throughout your life and career. Also, if you're still reading this long-winded book I've written, you just know that I want to become a patron in a space lizard and get those secret sucks going. But since I have bills in school, it just isn't feasible for me at the moment. But Nimrod knows I want to swim around in this glorious ball sack as soon as I get the chance. Praise Triple M. Hail Lucifina. Good boy, Bojangles. That guy, Dobbs. Well, thank you, Dobbs. Uh, keep kicking ass at school and keep critically thinking. Absolutely. Hail Nimrod. Uh, next up is a Casey Anthony update from Phil Foster that will make you even less likely to be her BFF. Phil wrote, just when you think you couldn't hate her more. And then he included a link to a new movie Casey is helping make about her life around the time of her daughter's death. The daughter, Kaylee, I think she killed. Anthony, now 33, told uh, recently told the Daily News that she is already working on the flick. It's called As I Was Told with first-time filmmakers in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. She expects the film to be finished next year. The movie is called As I Was Told because I'd done what I was told I had to do. I had to put a, on a fake persona throughout those 31 days, she told the Daily Mail. I should have taken the rein and done what I felt I should have done no matter who it hurt. 
My life was in others' hands from beginning to end. Clearly, I talked about this on the secret stuff. She has taken no responsibility for at least being partly responsible for her daughter's disappearance and death. This film is going to have sex scenes in addition to her partying uh, after Kaylee's death, leading to her in court, getting abused after acquittal. I, I, th- I think it sounds like she's starring in this. And Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley has told me that he will for sure jerk off to those scenes because he's a dirty, dirty boy. I can't wait for film critics to rip her apart for tastelessly exploiting her daughter's death. The Rotten Tomato view- reviews are going to be epic. Okay, quick shout out request from Anna Jackson. Sorry, most of those, uh, most of these, excuse me, don't get read on the air. Anna asked to relay the following message to Die Hard Sucker and the love of her life. Jackson, happy birthday, pumpkin. May your 31st be as spooky as Halloween all year round. I love you. And then Anna added, keep sucking those sweet topics and forcing random knowledge into my brain that I managed to wow customers at work with. Well, love it, Anna. I hope you, I hope you, uh, that was a good enough little shout out. And hail Nimrod. Now Carrick Ford shares information on a possible future Darwin Award winner he's been working, or he worked with in the past. Uh, <laughs> Carrick writes, Dear Suckmaster Deluxe, I have a future Darwin winner story for you. I just love the concept of a future Darwin Award winner. I'm a brewer at a brewery in Wyoming, and somehow management hired this knuckle dragger for help in the brewing area. (laughs) I love the term knuckle dragger. This guy was D-U-M dumb. And let (laughs) let me shed light on why I believe this. This guy was a complete bro. No knock on bros, because I kind of am one. But he is one of those slightly overweight meatheads that always carries around a protein shake tumbler. And excuse me, anyway, the first main incident was that he was fucking around with a zip tie and, <laughs> and zip tied his finger so tight that it turned purple. And I slowly had to cut it off with tin cutters to avoid a work-related incident. Aside from hot glue gun incidents, extremely hot water incidents, and various other hazards he got himself into there, there was one that stuck out and is why he is now referred to as the toothbrush guy. He told me that he would eventually tell me the real story of how it all happened, but this is how he explained it to me after it all occurred. He just got off work and went to the gym and was brushing his teeth for some fucking reason and was, quote, getting the back teeth. And then he, <laughs> and then he swallowed his toothbrush, a full-size fucking toothbrush. He panicked and went to the hospital where the doctors were dumbfounded and not able to extract the toothbrush. So he was taken in an ambulance to Billings, Montana, to a medical center there. They were able to get the toothbrush out. And the whole time I was receiving Snapchats about his progress and I screenshot every single one. If you want, I will send you those pictures and even the zip tie incident for proof. This guy never ceases to amaze me. Even after he was let go, he was lying on his resumes about what he did at the brewery to get other jobs and eventually kind of ran himself out of town just to give you a sense of who this dude is. We all die one day, but he might, he might not be the one who does from natural causes or he may surprise me, but I wanted to share with you that there are human beings out there like this and that scares me. Love the podcast and of course your stand up. And if you ever somehow end up driving through my hometown, beer is on me. Keep on sucking. Carrick. Uh, thank you, Carrick, for that message. Yeah, that's tricky to swallow your whole toothbrush. I just, I'm trying to think of the angle he had to have been at. <laughs> like, like looking straight up and just kind of pile driving, like pushing the toothbrush straight down, like a, like a sword swallower, like a carnival sword swallower. Like who I've never, ever, ever tried to brush my teeth at or even thought or, or seen somebody do that. That is uh, interesting. Yeah, he, he may be a Darwin Award winner. My God. I love the people at the first hospital. Like, what the fuck? I had to send you to another hospital. We, we're, we're not prepared for this, nor should we have been. Uh, interesting creepy doll sighting coming in from Matthew Denniston. 
Matthew writes, hey, Dan, huge fan and longtime listener. Just thought I'd let you know that literally 15 minutes ago, I was re-listening to the Ed and Lorraine Warren episode and the weirdest, creepiest thing happened. As you were talking about Annabelle, I, along with 19 other numbers, I do not know, received a text from another number, I do not know, of a fucking creepy redheaded doll. I swear to God, nothing else was sent and no one responded. I took a pic of the text. If you want to see it, once again, you are the best. I don't wake the bear is one of the funniest specials in the last 10 years. If you respond to this, I'll be more than happy to show you the picture of the group chat. And if I don't respond, it was the fucking doll. Uh, Jesus, Matt, please send that pic. Please send it into Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We want to know that you're alive. That's super creepy. That'll weird me out for the whole week for sure. I would be writing back. Like, what's, hey, what's going on? Hey, what are you guys doing? What's up with this weird doll? Why am I on some kind of death list? Um, and thanks for the kind words. That's very nice. And finally, an inspirational email from super sucker Yvonne Otter. Yvonne writes, Dear Dan, I'm compelled to write you a heartfelt thank you. Whether you even get this message or not, it would be too dramatic to say that you saved my life, but you certainly helped salvage a chunk of it and the story will be a go-to for me next time I'm feeling sorry for myself. I was recently traveling through Argentina with my husband. I had gone down to Buenos Aires for a conference and thought it would be fun to rent a camper and tool about the north end of the country. We came across many anticipated and unexpected barriers, language being the least of them. Everything was unfamiliar. There were numerous encounters with the police. Nothing seemed to work as we expected it to. Everything from getting money out of a bank machine to finding a place to camp, find water, find food, power, etc. It is important to note that I am blind. I can operate very well at home and at work under familiar circumstances. In fact, I often forget that I'm disabled. That said, this put an enormous amount of pressure on my husband to have to do just about everything for us both, even flush toilets for me. What the fuck? Why can't they standardize these things? Needless to say, I was feeling pretty useless and my mood started to sink lower and lower with each new challenge. But I at least had the foresight to download a couple dozen times like episodes for our trek across the country. Just when I needed it most, the episode Triumph over Unbelievable Tragedy came on. We were on day six of a pretty intense journey. My husband had been doing all of the navigating, cooking, driving, ensuring my comfort as best he could. Uh, I was feeling like a useless sack of shit. But when I listened to the episode, I was moved deeply. I had a very cathartic cry and a much needed attitude adjustment. It's funny because I already know all the lessons the episode had to offer firsthand. I live with a disability every day of my life. Malvika Ayer's words resonate with me as I too did not start living life until I was forced to deal with the fact that I would go blind. And I have. I went back to school, got my master's in psychology, camped in the Amazon, walked the Camino, and have lived as best I can with inner consent. I was in Buenos Aires to present at a World Congress for Existential Analysis. Yes, Viktor Frankl. Ah, love it. For what it's worth, I'd rather be blind than have my limbs blown off or eaten off, and I'm certainly not comparing my situation with theirs. I guess no matter what your fate is, there is ground to stand on and you learn to deal with it. What you are doing is important, and I think it speaks to everyone no matter where they're at. I dare to say that it fills people's souls. At the very least, it touches them and makes them stir ever so slightly. Keep on sucking. I'm truly grateful to y'all in the Suck Dungeon and my husband, of course. Yeah, sound like a great dude. Hail Nimrod, Yvonne, P.S. The Time Suck app is accessible to the blind. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much, Yvonne. Uh, the in inspiration is reciprocal. Uh, I guess I inspired you and you just inspired the shit out of me. And I'm guessing a lot of other people who are going to hear this. I don't know you, but I love you. What a, what a wonderful soul you seem to have. So glad you found happiness. And yeah, I fucking love Viktor Frankl. Logo therapy. Focus on the future. Find meaning in the life that you do have. So important. Time to your message. I felt like it was fitting for this suck too. Work with what you have. Don't feel sorry for yourself and focus on the future. And that's how you can live your best life. I hope right now you are feeling far more than helpless. You sound like a borderline superhero, badass motherfucker to me. 
So hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, and hail you, Yvonne Otter. And that's all for today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Uh, I hope you, uh, yeah, just have a good one. Try not to be, you know, out there on the street jerking off and in front of traffic. If you're going to do that, you know, at least, at least sit down. And most importantly, keep on sucking. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my fat bottom gal. Whip me until you tire. Baby, my monkey's on fire. If you refuse me, won't go abuse me. I'll cook up your skin and bones. Oh, baby, peanut butt butter is what gives daddy marks. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Showbiz. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.